welcome. Welcome to the other side of midnight. So glad to have you here. Our host, Richard C. Hoagland, is having technical problems. This is Kinsey. I'm standing in for you. We've got an amazing show lined up. Tonight it's called 911, but the families have asked. And the 911 commission ignored. Uh, our illustrious guest tonight, I'm really excited to bring on a new guest we haven't had before. And then uh, um, our illustrious Barbara Honiger, who's been many times on the show. She's a leading researcher, author, documentarian, and public speaker on the events of, nine, of September 11th. She played a key role in achieving the declassification and release of the 28 pages, which led to the passage of the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. That has enabled the lawsuits of thousands of 911 victims' families members to finally move forward into the courts. In the courts, she has served as special assistant to the president. Of the White, as a White House policy analyst, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and from 1995 to 2011, was senior military affairs generalist, journalist, forgive me, journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university at the Department of Defense. So I'm really pleased to be bringing you in, Barbara. And our new guest tonight, and I hope he will return, is Ray McGinnis. He is an educator with the University Church of Canada, working at their national office for nine years. He is the author of Writing the Sacred, a Psalm-inspired path to appreciating and writing sacred poetry. McGinnis is interested in stories we tell and ones we ignore and how they shape our worldview. He's taught many workshops, and it's this focus of his that led his curiosity around the story surrounding 911. He became really interested in news stories kept off the radar. This led him to delve deeper into the questions of the Family Steering Committee for the 911 Independent Commission. So these are the questions that are the source of his book, Unanswered Questions. In it, he explores the Family Steering Committee, the Family Steering Commission as of the 911 to investigate. And his website is unanswerdquestions.ca. So welcome, Barbara. Welcome, Ray. I'm so pleased to have you on the other side of midnight. Thank you, Kinthea. Thank you, Kinthea. <laughs> yeah, great to have you here. I mean, this is a show we cannot put off. It's an important show. And so many events are unfolding daily, new, new uh, revelations are happening. And I would like to, I'm so curious what led you down this path. And I know Barbara's um, got a lot of great questions for you. Uh, what led me down this path? Uh, it's a really, I mean, I think of myself as probably one of many, many people who are ordinary citizens 
around the world, we're all living in a post 9-11 world and up here in Canada and Vancouver and many other countries. I mean, there were I think nearly 90 nations in addition to the United States where people lost lives on the attacks of September 11th, 26 in Canada and 159 um, Canadian forces military died in the war in Afghanistan and many more were, were casual, you know, injured. And I began in, in night, I mean, on September 11th, I was in Joshua Tree National Park. I don't, if, if, if you know that area, it's, it's very hot. Uh, uh, and it's uh, on September, the week of, you know, the attacks, uh, there's, it's, it's often, uh, you know, in the hundred degrees, you know, even mm-hmm. into the hundred and tens. And so uh, I was part of a retreat with about 60 people. I was the only person who was not an American citizen. The other people at this retreat uh, were uh, from across about 20 different states across the USA. I got up first thing in the morning because that was when it was cool enough to do so and have a walk in the uh, in the desert, go past the Ocotillo cactus and the saguaro cactus and see some jackrabbits, saw a plane flying east from one of the airports in Western California and uh, got to 7 a.m. and it was uh, time for meditation and then stretching. So this is a regular kind of a day and many kinds of retreat settings where people are going to refresh and renew and trying to figure out um, what's the next chapter in their life. It, it, happens that, that, uh, it just so happens that Richard, Richard C. Hoagland, the host, we also did a retreat there at Joshua Center. So I know well of that area that you speak of. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you can imagine you know, people gathering, 60 people mm-hmm. in this hall and stretching and then suddenly in comes one of the uh, you know key leaders of the event uh, this setting is no tv is no radio mm-hmm. but somebody in the leadership has received a phone call from someone who is a close friend out on the east coast and talking about how there are planes that have hit the north and south tower of the world trade center and uh, that the Pentagon has also been hit. I don't know if we ever got told about another plane, but but I remember that much. And uh, as we were being told, stand in a circle and listen to the to this information. There were two people in the room who had uh, a, a manager of their finances, their stock portfolio, who worked in one of the twin towers. And so they're you know, Daphne, you know, <laughs> Daphne lets out a cry. <laughs> Whole, uh, started to sob, and it's very, of course, it's very um, moving. Different. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, and it's, and it's often it catches me right now as I feel this emotion welling up. Mm-hmm. I haven't lost anyone on September 11th. I just know somebody in that room who had a financial officer, and and they later survived. But even still, it's that you know choking up feeling. And, and so, uh, so there I was, uh, my plane that was supposed to go back about a day or two later, I couldn't leave, all the flights were grounded. Um, and so eventually, I, five days later, I got uh, up to Seattle on uh, the first planes that were allowed to fly domestically, and then was on a slow bus up to Vancouver with a three-hour stop at the Canadian Customs uh, with a thorough 
checked for bombs and everything and got back into Canada. And so there I am back in my country. And then the first thing I did to sort of figure out, um, you know, where am I going forward with this story was I went to hear our former foreign affairs minister, Lloyd Axworthy, who gave a public talk at the Vancouver Public Library, the Central Library. Mm-hmm. And he, t- he talked about how he thought, I mean, you know, the benefit of the doubt was, okay, the president of the United States has accused Osama bin Laden with orchestrating this attack. So uh, Lloyd Axworthy said, um, it seems that the sensible thing is, since this is an individual citizen of a nation, that the best response is a police and intelligence response to find a way to get apprehend this person and uh, take them to some, some setting, international or America, and have a trial. Uh, he was saying already there was the war drums with uh, Afghanistan. He, he, he uh, cautioned against that. He thought it would be a mistake. And so, uh, so that's, you know, what I heard. And then I'm really curious uh, in this journey of going from the retreat back to Canada, yeah. it, you mentioned it was such a visceral experience. What was the, what was the tone, the feeling of the people at the retreat? And also when you returned to Canada, how were the Canadians feeling about all this that had happened? I remember there were some people in the room. There was one, uh, there was a couple of guys who were uh, more into uh, martial arts, and they were kind of ready to uh, kick some butt. You know, mm. kind of that, that was part of the response. There were other people that were, you know, sobbing and and you know needing a lot of a, a lot of uh, nurture and and feeling very vulnerable. Uh, I, I I was just. I remember being sh- shocked. I mean, I didn't have, unlike um, many people, and you know, I may as well say this now, I don't have a television at home. Mm-hmm. And, and I hadn't since, since the Iraq war in 1991. And it was partly my own, a combination of things. I was busy with the former job I had at the United Church of Canada's national office in Toronto. I was traveling 100 days a year, I, going to many conferences, and leadership development events, and I didn't have time to watch TV. I didn't have time for sitcoms, and I thought, why am I spending this money every month on paying for television that I never watched? So I, I took the, the television and gave it to a you know, second-hand store. And so I'd been carrying on. So I, I was one of the people, I don't know how many people would be like me, I didn't see the image. I mean, I saw the photographs on the, you know, Vancouver Sun regarding the Twin Towers or whatever and the, the desolation afterwards. But I didn't actually see any video footage mm. of the towers being hit until about 2005. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, it was really something because I remember them playing over and over and over and over. It's just like, mm. Yeah, I, mean, uh, I think it's divine intervention you didn't have a TV. Go ahead, Barbara. <laughs> yeah, well, this is fascinating to me. Um, I, I have a comment and then a, an obvious follow-on question um, mm-hmm. to what I said. And my comment is um, the the former, if I understood correctly, I forget forget his uh, title. Yeah, foreign had, affairs minister. Yeah. yeah, the former foreign affairs minister of Canada. And he was absolutely right, of course. Uh, we should have never gone to war in Afghanistan, um, besides the fact that we now know for a fact that the official narrative of what happened on 9-11 is a complete and total Hitlerian big lie. 
yeah. uh, as to who attacked America on 9-11 and, and how and why. Um, but putting that aside, uh, it was in fact the Pentagon attack, not the attack on the World Trade Center towers, but in particular the Pentagon attack, which was an attack like Pearl Harbor that got the United States into World War II. Um, it was the attack on the Pentagon on an iconic national military facility like the original Pearl Harbor mm -hmm. that got us into World War II that enabled the Bush-Cheney administration and the intelligence and military, intelligence community and military of the United States um, to say that it was a war, um, not oh. to use the, the normal court system, the civilian mm. court system uh, mm. and the police powers um, to simply arrest bin Laden and uh, bring him into court someplace and, you know, put him away in Florence penitentiary um, okay. for the rest of his life. They, they, the entire operation, the inside operation was designed to, uh, as a pretext for first war in Afghanistan and then in Iraq. Um, so that's my comment. Um, the yeah. Pentagon attack, which is my expertise, yeah. which is the key to that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and, my question. Uh, go ahead if you want to comment on it. Then I have my question. No, I think I think, and there may there may well, of course. I'm in Joshua Tree National Park, and not only is there no radio and no TV, there's also no newspaper. So, <laughs> so, so I wasn't even seeing uh, a newspaper until about. Uh, I mean, I got back on the on the. I guess the 15th, uh, 15th, 16th, uh, I heard Lloyd Axworthy speak on the, on the 18th. I mean, by the time I got back on the 16th, I mean, I wasn't like going off and trying to find a newspaper. There are a whole bunch of people who are concerned about me and thank goodness you're back in Canada. And I mean, concerned about America and whatever's happening. So I had a, a big long list of social engagements of people that want to be reassured that I was okay and back in Vancouver. So I wasn't reading any papers at all. I probably didn't even read read a, a newspaper until you know later on, like the 23rd, 24th. So there could have been all kinds of important headline stories or stories on page B12 or or E17 that I missed that would have even told me about what you're saying right now. Right, right. Well, given what you've just told us, which, which does make you an outlier, um, that you didn't have TV, you didn't have newspapers for all of those days, you didn't see the ad nauseum repeats of the, the second plane going into World Trade Center 2, um, and um, you, you really didn't uh, uh, follow this up uh, with research for quite a long time. So the obvious next question which is the one that comes to mind next for me, is there, there must, what was it that got you onto this particular project? Because there are a lot of narratives, there are a lot of stories, there are a lot of national stories, but 9-11 mm -hmm. is one of them. It's an incredibly important one. Uh, the official narratives and then the alternative narratives of 9-11 that our 9-11 Truth Movement, of course, has been working on for 20 years, including mm -hmm. myself. Yeah. Um, but my question is, what was it that got you into this? And in particular, there must have been some moment or some piece of information, something you were told that led you to at least question the official story. And yeah. that, that must have had something to do with your choosing this project, this book project. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one thing, the, the first thing that I 
came across, and of course I'm, you know, I'm part of this liberal Protestant tradition up here in Canada, and so there are people that I know in the states as well. And one of the because pe- some of the people involved in process theology and the thought of David or of uh, Alfred North Whitehead, and so I uh, one of I know John Cobb Jr. who wrote the foreword to my book, and also. Uh, I think I'd heard at least at one event up in Canada, in Ontario, uh, David Ray Griffin had, had given a talk about theology uh, in the 1980s. So, so when I came upon a, I think it was, a, it was an edit, a column by Rosemary Radford Ruther, a feminist theologian uh, in California, who I knew who I'd heard speak before at a conference and up in Canada, she'd come up to Canada and, and I regarded her highly for her theological thinking. And so she had written in, uh, and I forget right now, which, which, uh, which, which magazine, but she'd wrote in a, uh, an article. I think it was either January, 2004, or January, 2005, but it was, a, it was, it was a, a book review of David Ray Griffin's the new Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And and it was, you know, only so many I don't know, thousand words, whatever, you know, but but it was saying, you know, this is this is a book that's really important. And and so she put the um, uh, she, you know, she put the idea in my mind that I'm going to buy the new Pearl Harbor by David Ray Griffin. And I probably That'll didn't get do it. That'll do it. Yeah. So 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 I think by 2006, I had bought the book. Because you may understand, as someone who's a writer and teaches writing workshops, I mean, and I, I, has an author now of writing the sacred. At every single writing workshop I go to, almost everyone, two out of three, some lovely person, participant in my group, says, "Here, I've always wanted you to get this book, or here's something I've written." And so I start to get stacks of books that people want me, you know, look at. So. <laughs> So, so the new Pearl Harbor was, was there, but it was on a stack of about 20 books to get to, but it was important. So I read, I read it. Now, when I read it, I thought this is really interesting. And this is a very compelling argument that there is, can be a totally different way of understanding this. Now I'm think I'm reading this book by myself. I don't really have hardly anybody that I, that I was talking with. Nobody was really bringing up September 11th in a, in a dissenting or contrary or questioning way of the people that I knew, not in the, in the liberal churches, which have all kinds of things they are concerned about climate change and all kinds of other issues around the world and justice for first nations people and all kinds of things. But this issue wasn't on their radar. So I wouldn't get into conversations with people about that, about this at all. So it's like, I got, I read this book. I thought, this is really interesting, and, I'm, and I think it's very compelling, but I didn't choose to write my book at that point. What, what got me to write my book was a couple of years later, I was on another writing workshop tour, and I finished the book I was reading, and I needed to find another book to finish the final 10, 10 days of the, uh, of, of the tour. And I happened to be in an airport, and I went to the bookstore, and there was a book by Kristen Breitweiser called Wake Up Call, The Political Education of a 9-11 Widow. Mm -hmm. And her husband, Ron, had died in the South Tower. And so I looked at the book, I looked at the index, I looked at, you know, the endorsements, and I decided to buy the book. And as I read it, I I was um, really surprised 
that I could go as somebody who follows the mainstream media and a little bit the alternate media at that time, that I could go six years listening to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and reading the Vancouver Sun and the Globe and Mail up here and, and catching CNN or MSNBC once in a while and other BBC. And I could go six years and never hear a thing about the family steering committee, only know the families in this way, that I had read some uh, reprints of obituaries in the New York Times in the Vancouver Sun, that I had heard on, on occasion on the radio uh, on the anniversaries, people reading the names of their loved ones that they lost, and a few articles here and there of uh, what a great person this was that died on September 11th, it was kind of an amazing story about all their accomplishments and it isn't awful that they died. And that was the whole slant. So now I'm reading this memoir about someone who was part of a group of, of people, including herself, who was widowed with a two-year-old in suburban New Jersey housewife, who's um, now deciding to not just tuck in and have a private life uh, and, and, and heal from her grief, but to decide to meet with other family members who are willing and to go to Washington, D.C. and knock on the doors of members of the Senate and Congress and have a rally uh, outside, the, outside the Capitol buildings and demand an investigation. Right. And I thought, this is a really important story, and why have I gone half, half you know, six years without hearing about it? Good question. Uh, by the way, Christian Breitweiser, in my opinion, was the, the, the most important uh, member of the Jersey Girls, the famous Jersey Girls, yeah. without which there would have never been a 9-11 commission. Uh, without which the 9-11 Commission wouldn't have been a whitewash, without yeah. which you wouldn't have your book. Yeah. Um, and she's also an attorney, by the way. She wasn't just the house. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And yeah. that made all the difference um, because uh, the other Jersey girls were, um, uh, I think, moms, uh, you know, taking care of their families and such and probably with jobs. But Kristen uh, is, was and is an attorney. Yeah. And so it was her analytical ability and her legal mind um, that really um, brought everything together uh, to to actually pull together the the uh, questions um, that the formal questions list the questions that the um, 9/11 victims family members led by the Jersey girl uh, gave to the 9/11 Commission so maybe you could go into um, you know the questions how it came up in your research that the 9-11 victims family members led by the Jersey girls actually came up with the questions and what are those questions and, and what does that have to do with your book? Yes. Yeah. So, yes, I think my sense is that, yes, I mean, certainly Kristen Breitweiser was a lawyer. And then I, I think that at the point where she, you know, gave birth, she was spending a bit more time just being a mom in that first right. year and a bit, okay. but yes, absolutely. agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so her book was a catalyst. Uh, then I went off and got the, you know, found the Family Steering Committee website, looked at their many unanswered questions, saw the video, uh, a documentary, 9-11 Press for Truth. And then my dad uh, got multiple myeloma in 2010. So for three and a half years, I shelved any idea of writing a book until he died in early 2014. And, and, then, and, then, and then I went back to it and I decided I, I do need to write this. So, so like the, I think the families, like their journey uh, is a really interesting one because uh, of the 12 people on the family steering committee, including the four Jersey girls, 
three of the five that I know of who have told the press how they voted in 2000 voted for the Bush Cheney ticket. That's right. You know, I mean, Bill Harvey and Kristen Breitweiser and Patty Casaza voted for, for Bush Cheney. And Patty Casaza has said that, that she thought having voted for Bush, that she thought that he would be their biggest champion in the effort to, to make the nation safe and get to the bottom of what happened. But she found that he was their biggest adversary. And, right. and so that, yeah, so that's, that's like one of the first kind of wake up calls for them in terms of getting things going and all this resistance. And then well, yeah. I, I have one other question. And then I know Kintia has many. Mm-hmm. Um, but you said I, I knew I had to write the book. Can you explain that? Why did you feel you had to write it? Well, I felt urged to do this because we're, we're all living in a post 9-11 world. I thought it's a, it's, there's been such a change. There's the Afghan war, the Iraq war, the anthrax attacks, the war on terror, endless wars, no end in sight, mass surveillance, and a real um, deforming of democracy. I mean, not just in America, but other places too. And I thought it was important to write about this, but I also thought that I might be able to write a book. I, having read David Ray Griffin's book and then later on Kevin Ryan's Another 19, and, and excellent, commendable books, uh, very solid, hard-hitting, political science, current events books. But I knew that the people, many of the people who, who were taking my poetry workshops my journaling through grief and loss workshops, uh, journaling to recover from health and injuries and illnesses, didn't have quite the same head or mind to grapple with some of these books. They would find them a bit too challenging or steep just because they weren't, they hadn't taken political science courses or history courses or whatever. And I thought the, the only way for the people that are coming to my writing workshops to be able to kind of tackle this topic is to write about this topic with a liberal sprinkling of personal narrative. Mm-hmm. That the personal narrative, like to introduce people to Kristen Breitweiser, Lori Van Auken, Mindy Kleinberg, Monica Gabrielle, Mary Fetchett, all of these people and more beyond the, the FSC itself, that that would be a way that if there was enough storytelling or, or you know, excerpts of people's testimony before the 9-11 commission or whatever, that that layering would be able to help people go ahead with maybe the more difficult discussion of, of uh, NORAD and what NORAD is, and, you know, cause sometimes people just feel overwhelmed, but I wanted to be able to write a book that the people that I knew could be interested in this, if they had a way in with personal narrative would hang in with the story that I, uh, with the book I wanted to write. Yeah, well, not only that, but in my opinion, pretty informed opinion, doing this for 20 years, like full time, um, since the day of 9-11 itself. Um, It is my informed opinion that the key to moving forward, the 9-11 truth movement forward to legal accountability for the real perpetrators are, in fact, the 9-11 victims' family members. And in particular, the Jersey girl. Um, Yeah. and people like Colleen Rowley, um, yes. who, you know, was on the cover of Time magazine, um, I believe, along with Kristen Breitweiser. 
uh, as whistleblowers on 9-11, and all women, by the way. Yeah. Um, and um, I also believe that it's a critical key to it. And you may, you may be the man, the person, uh, to, to be uh, like a catalyst for this. But I believe that what hasn't happened yet in the United States, in any case, you can tell us about Canada, but the liberal churches need to be awakened um, in this country. Uh, we, need to, we need to go to the progressive uh, religious community. And uh, that has not happened. Um, we also have not yet uh, gone into the university. Uh, there have not been teachings like during the Vietnam War. Mm. I mean, there are many, many things that need to be done. But there's no question in my mind that when you are able to bring in, especially at the core of your story, which is why your book is so important, um, to bring into the core of the narrative um, the 9-11 victims' family members so that ordinary people, not just in the United States and Canada, but around Mm -hmm. the world, Mm -hmm. can see that, oh, my God, if the Jersey Girls and other 9-11 victims' family members who lost their loved ones in the towers or on the plains or at the Pentagon or in Pennsylvania in Shanksville, if they want to know why NORAD didn't scramble uh, for the first time ever. This is a really good spot to break in, Barbara. We have a break now. Okay. Beautiful. Thank you. So you are listening to The Other Side of Midnight. The show tonight is called 911, What the Families Have Asked and the 911 Commission Ignored. And our guests tonight are Ray McGinnis and Barbara Honiger. And we'll return after the break. I think you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globaloni's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. Because at that point, you're not dealing with a currency. You're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button, depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls. And if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers, that's not a system you want to go into. You look at the West, and more importantly, if you look at what some people call the Anglosphere, the the Western powers that are English-speaking, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, and so on. I do think it's the case there. They're using a health crisis really to drive a, a political agenda. 
and the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. If you look at what Mr. Globalone is up to, they are recreating slavery. And the, the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you. It's not going to go away overnight, but there are already, uh, I think, some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice. This is Joseph P. Farrell. And for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear, tune in to the other side of the news. of Midnight. Our guests tonight are Ray McGinnis and Barbara Honiger. And the show is called 911, What the Families Have Asked and the 911 Commission Has Ignored. So I have really been enjoying listening to how your book is distinguished from the other books out there, that it appeals to the person who really hasn't had a lot of exposure to the unveiling of this crime, if you will. Definitely. And uh, Ray, Barbara, we have a caller on the line who was actually at 911. He was there. Usually we don't take callers till the third hour. And I'm thinking maybe we just bring this caller on for a moment to get a, a sense of the flavor of what we're talking about. Are you both in agreement? I think yeah. that's a great idea. Because okay. So, Keith, would you zero. please bring on that caller? Mm-hmm. Yes, how are you? Hello. Good, thanks. Who, Hello. Who, I'm sorry, dear, but who are you? Oh, yeah, my name is Rick. I uh, I worked, uh, unfortunately, well, God, I worked there that day, and I saw everything that happened. How uh, close didn't, what's that? How close to it were you? Uh, I was actually on the train from New Jersey when the second plane hit. That's why they shut us down. But I hid in the bathroom on the New Jersey Transit, and, and I got out of NJ Penn, or at New York Penn. Mike. And then, uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately, I watched uh, I watched the buildings go down. Oh my goodness! Well, you know what I'd like to do, Ray. Since you wrote the book and you're a writer, I mean, I could ask questions of Rick, but I'm sure that you're biting at the <laughs> chopping at the bit, so to speak, to get a chance to interview this individual. Would you like to ask him some questions? 
Yeah. So Rick, what, um, so you, you were above ground at the point that before the towers fell? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just coming out of New York Penn, uh, right, like about, about 13 minutes before the buildings fell. So unfortunately I had to watch it. And and, uh, did you happen to talk to anyone before the towers fell that had an interesting thing to say to you or interesting conversation with anyone prior to the first tower falling? Well, no, because I I literally came up the steps uh, at Madison Square Garden. Like, you know, right, you know, you know, New York Penn Station. Yeah, I I literally came up right as I wasn't supposed to be there. I was in a train full of military and uh, well, like National Guard and and Port Authority cops, because I was we were all supposed to be left at the last the last stop in Jersey. But I had to get to work, so I hid in the bathroom. And when I got out, they were like, you're not allowed to be there. And I said, what are you going to do, turn around? Rick? Yes. Yeah, this this is Barbara. Um, I'm an investigator of 9-11 for 20 years and co-host of this show. Um, I would would like to know, why were you with these military uh, personnel? Uh, What was, were you part of the military uh, mission? No, I just said I hid in the bathroom when they had the last stop, and they were so panicky they didn't check. And then as soon as we got at Penn Station in New York, they went. I jumped out, and they were like, "Who are you?" And I was like, "I'm just. I work at. I work at the radio station. I work at, you know, WNEW." Right, said, well, you're no, not supposed to be here. Yeah. What are you going to do? Turn it around? Let me go. So they just let me go out of the train station. Right. So, so these military personnel, um, please, please clarify for me. Forgive me for not understanding, but you were on uh, some kind of transportation with them. Yeah, that's, yeah, the train. The train. I, I'm not. A, I'm not. A I think Barbara. If I'm understanding, Rick, you were on the train. Then the military happened to be on there, or they got on after you were on, and. You no. What happened? All right. So I'll get, I'll get through the long story. I was trying to keep it short for the show, but I was on the train from from New Jersey, and they stopped the train in Newark, New Jersey, and said everybody has to get off. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, military, well, National Guard and Port Authority started loading up onto the train. They were they weren't paying attention. The towers just got hit, so I hid in the bathroom. So what possessed you to do that? Were you like you wanted to get the inside story or you just committed to getting to no, work? No, I wanted to get to work. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. I understand. I understand. Well, that's fascinating to me. How how long after, well, let's see, uh, when all of those military personnel were getting on the train, at what point was that after the first or the second towers were hit? Approximately what time? Do you know? Uh, I would say it was right after the first tower got hit. Well, that's, so they that's, were already that mobilizing. If, if that's true, that would be extremely revealing because at the time the first tower was hit, we're supposed to believe that everybody thought it was just an accident. Well, no, everybody did think it was an accident, but they still did shut down the, uh, the train lines from, from New Jersey. But but why they, started, the military they, they, they started loading with 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 uh with uh 
what do they call them, the National Guard, they started loading automatically right away. And they were ready to go. <laughs> what do you think, Ray? Well, you got to protect, you you protect your people. Emergency yeah, well, workers were there. Everybody was there. I mean, there were there was there was like ambulances pulling up to the to the train station, bringing in you know all kinds of equipment, all kinds of stuff. So, so I just went and hid in the bathroom because I wanted to go to work. So uh, I worked Rick, for a radio station. No, so, that was so, good. so you saw the towers. You saw the towers fall. Um, what what were your thoughts then after the towers fell? And what are your thoughts uh, more recently? I mean, uh, how how have you uh, has your perspective changed in any way, or, or you know, just what what were your reactions at the time? Well, they definitely changed. I mean, immediately as soon as I saw them fall, I said, "This is the end. That, that there's no more. That this is it. We all go, and we'll we'll meet each other on whatever plane our, our gods, uh, you know, give us. That's it." So you I, felt I it was yeah. world calamity in a sense. What's that? Like everything was going down. Huh? I think we lost Rick. Oh, we couldn't hear you, dear. It dropped out. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. No, yeah, no. I thought, I thought was... the second, the second I saw the building. Okay. I'm sorry. Where are we at here? Yeah, we yeah. can hear you now. Yeah, just your reaction at the time. Uh, you thought it was just like, you know, you're, you're on the other, you know, we're all going to meet our maker somehow. Right. Um, and in the in the days following, did, did you did you have questions about what had happened or what you were being told in the news or talk to people about what you, sense you were making of it? In, in in all honesty, I was I was more ignorant. Uh, than anything because I saw the buildings fall and I saw planes hit. So I just, I, I started getting mad at people that were questioning it. Did you instead actually of, see the planes or you saw the buildings fall? Go ahead. Sorry. Did you actually see the planes or did you just see the buildings fall? I'm sorry. I saw the planes. I saw, I saw the buildings fall. But so, did you but see the plane of, actually hit? Go ahead. Did you actually see the plane. No, I was on the train. I was on the train. Uh-huh. Okay, so you just saw the buildings fall because there have been questions about those planes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Rick, well, I, that's fine. I, I, have, I want to go back to my original question and ask you. Um, are, we, are we going to do the, uh, the – never mind. Go ahead. Well, it, it's important. I'll explain why the answer is important. Um, how sure are you that when the – train stopped and the military personnel and FEMA personnel got on the train and everyone else was asked to get off so that they could have the seats. How sure are you that that was after the first plane hit, but before the second plane hit? Can you be sure of that or not? No, I can be, I can be sure it was before the buildings fell. Right. Okay. So it could have been after the second plane hit. Oh, no, listen, I'm not, I'm not against you guys on this because when I saw it, all my whole thing was this: let that let's let that retard president attack all these idiots. That's all I thought. But then now, after I think, after years and years and years of looking at things and studies and, 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 and reports, I go, well, maybe yeah, that's 
wasn't exactly what they all said was going to happen. Why were these? And this is my question: Why were the trains that I, the trains that I, the train I was on specifically, my train? Why was that one so easily filled with uh, with National Guard so quickly? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so quickly. Oh no, mm-hmm. I have questions. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not against you guys. No, we, no, we don't get that. that impression. We don't get that impression. We don't have that impression at all. It was odd. That, that you should call into this show tonight, uh, Rick. And the reason for that is, from my point, my personal point of view, is that as an investigator of what really happened on 9-11 and the problems with the official narrative for 20 years, um, just a few days ago on September 11th, presentation that is online, and I'll let the listeners know uh, how to watch it here in a moment, including yourself. Um, but I gave a presentation to a global 9-11 and, uh, 20th anniversary live stream event that went around the world. Um, my presentation was on um, the anthrax attacks, the follow-on anthrax attacks um, of 9-11 that are directly related to 9-11. And the important thing, the most important revelation in my presentation um, that you can watch online now uh, is that uh, before before the attacks of 9-11, Mayor Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management, uh, working with the Department of Justice, with Vice President Cheney's office, uh, with FEMA, with the New York Police Department, the New York fire department, and on and on and on, they had a, an, a terrorism, counterterrorism response exercise planned to be executed in New York City on September 12th. However, all of the FEMA, military, police, and other yeah. personnel were already ready to go on the 10th of September, the day before. And I would okay. be very surprised if those people who got, those military personnel who got on your train um, were not anyway, part of I, that I pre-pandemic. Don't, I, don't dis- I don't disagree with you at all. I'm not not disagreeing with you. I'm saying there's, this has been going on for quite a long time before then, and I'm sure you know uh, the 1992 bombing of the, uh, was it 92 or 94? 93. The bombing of the World Trade Center. 93. Okay, so now when that bombing happened, that the the guy who pretty much put the bombing together and did everything, he lived in Queens Gardens, which is the, oh no, sorry, uh, yeah, Queens Gardens in in Colonia, New Jersey, section of Woodbridge, right by Woodbridge uh, Railway Train Station. Huh? They knew about this and they talked about it in every report for 9/11. They talked about this thing that happened eight years earlier. Right. So you knew what they were doing. Right, exactly. You're you're referring to the World Trade Center one attack in February of 1993. Mm-hmm. By yeah, Ramsey. I, I lived I lived three blocks from that guy who did that. You mean from Ramsey Yusuf himself? What's that? Well, you're talking about Ramsey Yusuf. Yeah, I lived right down the street from him. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I live in a beautiful yeah, I apartment complex. 
when you when you mentioned the 1993 uh, truck bombing of the North of the North Tower, uh, it ends up being a small world because I have a friend in Toronto named Danelle, and one of his best friends was Don D. Giovanni, I think was his name, and he was one of the I guess six people who died in the 1993. Oh. Yeah, so it's just, you know, I remember sorry to hear that. Yeah. Sorry for your loss, brother. Oh, well. I think your experience with the military personnel on the train at the time that that happened is incredibly important. So, Rick, what I'd like to suggest is you, on the contact form, you send a contact to us, and I'll make sure that Ray and Barbara get it so they can follow up with you. Yeah, well, they, they, I'm already in the. Uh, I'm, my name is already in the uh, the 9/11 reports. Everything's in there because I worked for for WNW at the time, and we went on the air for 14 hours straight. Mm-hmm. Well, I I uh, really appreciate that, and if you could send your contact, because I'd like to get back to our guest. I want to hear more about what he has to report, and this has been really illuminating to have a firsthand report. I really appreciate it, Rick. Sure. Uh, really I'll, great. I'll send it over. Uh, Let yeah. me know where to send it. Rick, just Rick, could, the contact just, form on the website. Rick, could you just clarify? You I'll take care you of it. Name, Rick, when you said your name is in the 9-11 report, are you saying that you are in, you are referenced in the 9-11 commission report? Absolutely, I am, yeah. Okay, what's your last name, if you're willing to let us know? Kaczynski. Not Kaczynski <laughs> like Ted Kaczynski? No, no. It's spelled a little different. Okay. Don't don't All take right. it that way. See, that's why my, my last name never works out. I'm not allowed to talk about anything because my last name is Kaczynski, but it's spelled different from Ted Kaczynski. I yeah. get it. I right. get it. Thank you so much. So we look forward to talking with you in the future. Mine's, mine's Kaczynski oh. with a C, not with a K. Okay. Thank Got you. I'm not the user bomber. I don't live in Montana. I don't own a shack. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, right. I hope you will continue listening to the show uh, while we continue on. And Ray, uh, what do you think of all this? Well, I think it's interesting, you know, like interesting hearing Rick talk about like over time, he's had some more questions and come like, his perspective has changed over the year. And I think it's so important. One of the things that, that I noticed in people when there would be sometimes uh, passionate discussions, very occasionally at a dinner conversation or at a, a party somewhere where people would start talking about September 11th and they talk about people who are part of the 9-11 truth movement and there'd be ridicule and other statements people saying no there's this there's points to the story not holding together in some way and there would inevitably some be somebody who would say well they'd ask a question like you know what what happened to the you know why was there no military response and there'd be people would say things like well you know, you're just asking these questions. You, know, you have no respect for the families. You wouldn't be questioning the official story if you if you were more respectful of the families who lost loved ones. And when I was writing my book, I, I had several conversations with people who know me, and they asked me if I'm writing something new. And I, I'd mentioned this, which was a different kind of thing to be writing than 
writing poetry or other things. And, and I had a number of people tell me, you know, questions, questions. How could the families have questions? And I thought it was really interesting to see how there was a time way back in the, you know, the early 2000s where it was difficult to ask questions, but there were some people asking questions and 9-11 Press for Truth documentary was out, although not seen by a lot of people. But it seemed to me that, that over time, this, the kind of the calcification of, of and hardening of views about, about uh, how important the official story was amongst those that believe it's really important, uh, was circled the wagons by also saying anyone who asks questions is somehow insulting to the families. And so I thought in writing my book, it's really important to, to consider exactly the questions that the family steering committee, Kristen Breitwiser and everyone else actually asked the 9-11 commission to, to, to uh, investigate. And that the 9-11 commissioners themselves, when they received these hundreds and hundreds of questions from the families, even thousands, I think Kristen Breitwiser mentions in her book at one point, that the, fa- that the 9-11 commissioners said of those questions that these questions will be a roadmap for how we'll do our investigation. Right. And then they end up only answering nine percent with any seriousness. Mm. Right, because they lot. couldn't they couldn't answer the others and and the official story still stands. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's, it's this this dance of public deference toward the families and then privately ignoring the questions in all in you know, uh and, and choosing to spend time during the the, the commission, when witnesses come forward by, you know, flattering them or having little asides about, uh, I'm an old man from the Midwest or whatever, you know, just all kinds of flattering. I forget Condoleezza Rice. She looked great, you know, where, uh, I don't know if they said, where'd you get, but I think uh, Lori Van Auken, whose husband Kenneth died in the North Tower, says that, you know, there'd be witnesses who would be flattered for their hairdos. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Ray, could you address the Many people either don't know or maybe have forgotten that the Jersey girls, there wouldn't have been a 9-11 commission if it weren't effectively for the Jersey girls. Could you tell us that story? Sure. So there there were um, uh, four widows in New Jersey, Kristen Breitweiser, uh, Lori Van Auken, Patty Casaza, whose husband John died in the North Tower, and Mindy Klein whose husband Alan died in the North Tower. And there were gatherings. I mean, initially what's happening is the families are just grieving and trying to deal with funerals. But then the, um, over in Congress, there's, they're wanting to have a big bailout package for the airlines, what, $15 billion or whatever. And in that discussion on Congress, somebody says, hey, wait a minute, we can't just give $15 billion to the airlines and give nothing to the families. So then suddenly something called the Victims Compensation Fund gets quickly put together and the families, including Kristen Breitweiser, Lori Van Auken, Patty Casaz, and Mindy Kleinberg are, are getting, uh, you know, letters, I assume letters from the, uh, from the government saying you need to come to a, a forum where you'll be getting a presentation about the victim's compensation fund, you know, and, and so the families come and it was at one of those gatherings that, that the four, uh, 
Jersey girls, as they're called, uh, met each other and and began to form a you know a, a potent force to start driving uh, you know an effort to to have an investigation. There were other people like Carrie Lemack uh, and Robin Weiner who were forming the families of September 11th, the FOS 11, which is more establishment group, but they're also wanting an investigation. And so are people like Mary Fetchett and Beverly Eckert up in um, New, New Canaan, Connecticut with voices of September 11th. And then uh, skyscraper safety campaign with Monica Gabrielle and, and Sally Reaganhart. So there's these different groups that are all kind of forming, but certainly the Jersey girls, you know, all four of them were part of, you know, pushing to have a rally on the, uh, on the 11th of June, 2002, because they weren't getting anywhere. Uh, Dick Cheney was was phoning members of Congress saying, you know, quash any any effort to have an investigation, threatening Tom Daschle, the Senate Majority Leader, and telling him not to have an investigation. They couldn't afford the money, the resources, and so the families did have this invest. They had this rally on the 11th of of June 2002. They, you know, they're running around Home Depot trying to make signs and every and you know figure out what they're going to do. And so uh, Joe Lieberman from Connecticut, Democrat, John McCain from, from Arizona, Republican, were among the two in, in the Senate pushing uh, to support them, plus Chris Shea's uh, Republican New Jersey congressman and a, a number of other ones on both sides of the aisles. And so fast forward, they get the support to start you know, figuring out Washington, D.C. and the Senate and the Congress. And then Kristen Breitweiser uh, ends up, I think maybe all four of the Jersey girls end up with Chris Matthews hardball in late uh, August of 2002. And, uh, you know, saying, you know, what is, you know, we should be having an investigation. It just took, you know, five days for the Challenger space shuttle in 1986, January 28th to February 3rd. Uh, but here we've lost nearly 3,000 people and there's this stonewalling. And so then when Kristen Breitweiser got to go uh, uh, before the joint 9-11 inquiry of the Senate and Congress intelligence committees on the 18th of September 2002, and she gave her riveting testimony, then uh, you know, White House staff said a train was coming and nothing could stop it. Yeah. So yeah. Kristen Breitweiser's presentation to the joint House-Senate intelligence committee hearing, uh, I believe, was the turning point. Barbara. Yeah. Barbara, we're at the top of the hour, and this is a really fascinating conversation, and I'd like to give us the opportunity to go into depth. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guests tonight are Ray McGinnis and Barbara Honiger. Ray has written a book called Unanswered Questions, in which he explores the questions of the Family Steering Committee that were not uh, answered, <laughs> that were ignored, and we'll get back to you after the break.
thesideofmidnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. of Midnight. Our guests tonight are Ray McGinnis and co-hosting are Barbara Honiger and myself, Kinthea. We're standing in for Richard C. Hoagland, who had some technical problems. We are discussing the 911 event and uh, the people surrounding it, the stories in it. And Ray, just before we went to break, you were talking about the Jersey girls and you mentioned them going around Home Depot, getting things for signs. And I'm wondering what was it, first of all, if you had a chance to meet them and actually talk with them? And the other thing is, what was it that made a shift from them to leave the uh, the narrative putting being put out by the government and start to question it? What You know, it must have taken some courage and some insight to make that move, to break away like that. Yes, and this is a very interesting story that's, that is, uh, it's got some nuances, uh, because it, I would have written a different book if I was writing uh, a 20 year history of the 9-11 truth movement. I could have called a book like top 25 reasons why the official, narr- official story cannot be true or something else. But this, this is a different story with, with a range of people on this family steering committee. And I want to sort of set the table a bit more in terms of, but I will say I, I've been in touch just by email with, with Lori Van Auken. Um, I had tried to reach a number of, a number of other p- members of the family steering committee, several other uh, uh, Jersey girls, but 
you know, I know that, for example, Mindy Kleinberg, as far as I know, uh, the Newark uh, uh, Ledger Star tried to reach her three or four times with reporters, uh, and she didn't return their calls back in 2012. And, and I know someone who's more recently a, 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 an investigative reporter that I've spoken to from Vermont, who's previously spoken to Kristen Breitweiser and Lori Van Auken, uh, has not had calls returned more recently. And I, I think about that, and I think about how would it be if I had lost a family member and, and it was part of a, a big story with political overtones and impacts, how many years would I want to be open to answering phone calls, uh, returning emails mm. from total strangers, uh, right. not only from my own country, but maybe from other countries, from Canada, the United Kingdom, and so on. And I can imagine how, and I'm, I've listened to people, you know, in terms of their, their comments to the, to, the, to the press. I remember uh, Monica Gabrielle saying back in like 2010 or so that she, she'd moved on from 9-11. Like, like some of these people think they've tried to really, you know, shake the foundations of, of Washington, D.C. To, to make their nation safe and get to the bottom of the truth and accountability. But they also don't feel that they owe it to the world to have to be always on the end of the phone and ready to pick up and talk about what they think or their painful personal story. Uh, and, and so I mostly had to, had to go with what's available in public material. I watched all of the... 9-11, the testimonies of all the family members that spoke before the 9-11 Commission in public hearings. I read all their press releases. I read lots of other articles, saw several documentaries, uh, and, and did what I could to sort of do, get, it, get at it that way. I can understand, Ray, that that, that would have uh, been, I can see why it would be difficult to talk with them. I imagine myself constantly being to be reimmersed in it over and over and over again with it. You can understand why they want to get on with their life because yeah. you're constantly reliving it. And, you know, if you have children or something, they, you want to live your life. You want to be in the present. So I can see why they would be hesitant to want to speak, and keep, yeah. you know, stay in touch like that. So, yeah, you follow the other avenues that were available to you. And, yeah. and I understand that the way you've written the book, it makes it easy for the lay person to really follow. I was watching a, another interview that you had, and she was commenting, Christina was commenting, how you had laid it out. You want to speak a little bit about that, how you've made it more accessible to an uninformed reader? I think it's it's because I've... I've just sort of spread the table and we're going to get to the questions, but I think it's really interesting sort of nudging us along. And like, I I begin with the calamity and, and, you know, everybody, a lot of people who are, you know, five years old or older can remember maybe where they were on September 11th. And so I begin by letting the reader know about, I introduced them to all 12 members of the family steering committee. I let them know that Bill Harvey had, had lost, his bride of only a month, Sarah um, Manley Harvey. And I let them know that uh, Carol Ashley lost her daughter, Janice. And I talk about each of these people, uh, all 12 members of the family steering committee, and they get to know a little bit about these people and they start to care about them. And Mm -hmm. I I let them know about some other people, Jeanette McKinley, who wrote an important uh, memoir called Fortunate, a Personal Diary of 9-11, who was a resident living across from World Trade Center 4. 
Uh, I mean, and I follow her a bit through how Jeanette McKinley and you know, uh, you know, all the dust that comes comes in, and she saves some of it. And later on, uh, she ends up, go, you know, she at first thought Jeanette McKinley uh, uh, thought that of joining the U.S. military. And she was so, you know, angry and upset with what had happened and believing in the official story. And she's also an artist and she had done this uh, creation uh, of a kind of a Japanese itchy band. But anyway, she has Osama bin Laden in the crosshairs at one point of, of a gun. Yeah. By the way, but let me just jump in and tell you that I knew Jeanette and oh. I was in her apartment and she showed me the windowsill that she got the dust off of and she oh. had the dust in jars and mm. there were a number of samples of the dust that she collected from her apartment um, that were then used uh, by uh, Neil Parrott yeah. and Stephen Jones and others uh, in their peer-reviewed uh, study, uh, oh, scientific cool. study, a forensic yeah. study of the dust that oh. proved that there was uh, even even unexploded um, military-grade nanothermite incendiaries and explosives in the dust of the World Trade Center that could not have been there simply from a plane impact and fires. So Jeanette McKinley was a very, very important person. Unfortunately, she's no longer with us. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. she she died. And, uh, and, and, I, and I thought her story and what she mentions, even in, her, in that diary, Fortunate, and also that, you know, the shifts that go on, I mean, later on, she, she goes to the Commonwealth Club in 2005, I think, looking forward to hearing the 9-11 commissioners, a couple of them that were on, on tour, explaining the, uh, the 9-11 commission report. And she says that, uh, that there was a Q&A after, after the, the presentation and that the, and that she, all the people in the audience were frustrated because the answer to every single question was that's classified information. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, so people get, you know, early, the the reader, the lay reader is getting to know these stories of people, first responders, Tommy Hetzel, some of the people who, who died, uh, Chris Joya, who's the fire commissioner from Franklin square and Munson fire department. Get to know different people's voices, uh, to, and then start to follow the shift from the family's grief to their shift for advocacy. And then, as they get into that shift for advocacy, people are just astonished to find out, oh, now, now the president said, okay, we're going to have a 9/11 commission. Now, oh, what's he going to do? He's going to hire Hen- put Henry Kissinger in charge of it. And and then that whole story, uh, which is another moment in the life of the, of the newly formed family steering committee where they start to realize that there's something more that they're up against than just, well, they, they knew by 14 months of stonewalling that they're up against something. But now you've got Henry Kissinger, who's going to lead the 9-11 commission. So the family steering committee all go to, to Kissinger's office on Park Avenue, I think, and, uh, and he turns up the heat really hot to 86 degrees. And, uh, and the, uh, Kristen Breitweiser and Lori Van Aken had done some back checking, and they wanted to make sure, Dr. Kissinger, that you don't have any conflicts of interest. And so Lori Van Aken asks him while well, he's pouring coffee, um, we want to make sure, Dr. Kissinger, you don't have any conflicts of interest, that you don't have any clients by the name of Bin Laden. Bin Laden. And at that point, he spills coffee all over the coffee table, half <laughs> falls off the, cu- the couch, blames it on a fake eye, and then resigns the next day. Wow. 
blame what? I'm sorry, blame a fake eye? He, he blamed his spilling the coffee and falling off the couch on a fake eye. What do you mean a fake eye? Like, like a, like a, like a, like a, a, a like it'd be like a glass eye, I suppose. Like a, he not, had not, a fake a, eye. Y- 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 yeah, like a like <laughs> out of one eye. How weird. Well, well, sometimes if people say, I guess if if a, someone has been blinded, maybe they they end up having some sort of surgery and have a kind of a, an, I guess an, a fake, uh, a cosmetic eyeball put in there to make it not look. Uh-huh. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> that was the first thing he, he the first thing Dr. Kissinger thought to say to the families to explain what he was doing as he spilled the coffee all over the place. And, oh my god. And, and and you know and and I mean Monica Gabriel says, you know, they looked around at each other and says what what you know, they started going around trying to well what what mothers do or or you know, wives do is they start trying to go and and clean up the spilled coffee, you know. So <laughs> So instead of instead of dealing with the question now, they're all kind of trying to get paper towels and clean things up. Oh my gosh! Oh my, but well, now finish the story. He resigned the next day. So he resigned the next day, and you know they, they don't know. I mean, all they know is that he wanted to protect his client privilege, you know. But uh, they they figure, well, good, he's gone. So now you know. So now it's. Uh, the next people who get put on are, are Tom Keene. Uh, Tom is Keene from the governor, Republican governor of New Jersey, uh, and Lee Hamilton, longtime Democrat from Indiana, who also they learn later on is, uh, uh, was on the uh, in Iraq-Contra inquiry, uh, is a longtime best friend of Vice President Cheney and uh, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, often having vacations, uh, the the Hamiltons, the Cheneys, and the Rumsfeld together, going off on on vacations together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some people are wondering, is is this uh, maybe this this is such a good thing because maybe Lee Hamilton is going to want to steer uh, things away from anything that might be embarrassing or damaging to the vice president or the secretary of defense. Uh, and then you've got uh, Thomas Tom Keene, who who. I don't even know if I mentioned this because I had more stuff in my book than ended up being there. You know how ed- editors are. So, but Tom Keene also is—he's involved in, a, in in on the board of one of the the companies, are part of a consortium pressing for a new pipeline across Afghanistan. So he's got some conflicts as well. But and then the family's saying, okay, we got these two guys named, and then okay, they only given three million dollars for a budget for the for the investigation. And at that point, you've got uh, even the New York Times, I think, and the Boston Globe are saying, you know, you know, they're thinking that the, that the White House's intention is to starve the 9-11 Commission of, of funding so they can't do their job properly. But when the families start to meet, you know, they start to meet in, in, in earnest with uh, the co-chairs, Hamilton and Keene, and other commissioners, the 10 commissioners, uh, named five named by the uh, – the rest of them are named by the Democratic uh, – Senate um, Chair Haschel and and his opposite the Republican uh, Majority Leader or Majority Leader depending on what it was. So uh, there uh, they meet, they sit down and meet. Uh, Bob McIlvain uh, is also there, not a family steering committee member, but he's there uh, with Peaceful Tomorrows, and, and another person is, is there as well, Stephen Push with Families of September 11, and they meet and they they're finding out that. Lee Hamilton does not want to have any public hearings. 
He thinks that it would be damaging and dangerous. Uh, Lee Hamilton doesn't want to have anyone swearing under oath. Lee Hamilton doesn't want to have any subpoenas. And so there are some people like Kristen Breitweiser and Bob McElvain in an interview I did have with him said he, they just thought that, you know, that, that Lee Hamilton was not at all interested in having an honest investigation. So this is part of what's going on, you know, even February, March. Um, did, did Lee Hamilton say who it would be dangerous to and why? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't I think from 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 watching Lee Hamilton in in, in public testimony, the 9-11 commission. Um, I think that he is a master of vagueness and uh, but he kind of drops things that are there for people to chew on, but that never clarifies them. Uh, one one time when I was. Well, I was watching the testimony of Mary Fetchett and uh Mindy Kleinberg on the first day of the public hearings, I think March 31st, 2003. It takes about an hour and a half because they each have about 40 minutes of testimony. And it's stirring and very moving. And the families are right there behind them, all sitting behind them, the Jersey girls and all the other members of the family steering committee and more. They've got a full house. Right. And you have uh, the, the, the 9-11 commissioners sitting opposite them sort of in a row. And Mindy Kleinberg finishes her testimony, and there is some clapping, and there are some other commissioners clap, a couple of them, but Lee Hamilton and Tom Keene do not clap at all. Um, Lee Hamilton looks like, like, I don't know, he gives a nonverbal kind of uh, uh, look, which uh, is almost like saw a ghost or something it's just like yeah. he, he just wants he wants this to be over whatever's just happened and right. tom Keene says he, he doesn't at that moment anyway thank the thank mary fetchett and and mindy kleinberg for their stirring testimony and uh, about their own circumstances plus their very important questions he just sort of says there's somebody else now in the room that needs to come and and i think we've got time for this person to come up so it's 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 a way of ignoring the impact of the testimony itself by just it'd be like me saying after you say something as we're talking tonight to say boy i feel like having a pretzel i, I don't know <laughs> like, yeah, um, like, that, that reminds me why don't you tell the uh, the listeners and kinthea or maybe she already knows from your interview with christina uh, borgeson the other day which was also great um tell tell what happened uh uh, with um, Thomas Keene, who was the co-chairman with Lee Hamilton, when uh, when he was asked the critical question, and you can say what the question was, of Donald Rumsfeld at the hearing. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, in an interview that uh, I know about this because Lori Van Auken had an interview with on the Peter B. Collins show, and she was talking about, and it's also in the in the in the kind of testimony of what you can watch, but. Uh, but uh, Tom Keene, uh, so I think it's Richard Benveniste is asking uh, Secretary Rumsfeld, uh, did you uh, order uh, fighter jets to be scrambled to protect the Pentagon? And Rumsfeld hears the question, looks around across the wall, <laughs> sees a couple of different ceiling lamps, uh, <laughs> uh, exit signs. 
a clock on the wall. And eventually, after this sort of long, long pause, repeats the question, did I order uh, <laughs> fighter jets to be scrambled to protect the Pentagon? And then Tom Keene, the chair of the 9-11 Commission, bangs the gavel and says, next question. Right. And, and so this is one of the examples of, you know, 9% of the questions were dealt with with seriousness. 70% were not dealt with at all or not even asked. And 21% and of the questions were asked. But this question is actually an example of one of the questions that was asked. And the answer was simply to repeat the question back and then nothing more. <laughs> it's just, just yeah. incredible, uh, this kind of incredible. political theater. And, yeah, please, and no one spoke okay. up. I mean, there weren't like, you know, gasps of, of horror from the people listening. I mean... There, there are points where, where I see where I got to saw, see that, and others who you may yourselves have seen the testimony that happened on May, I think May eighteenth, two thousand four, with Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Yes, that is the most boisterous example of of family members uh, outraged, uh, ca- calling, you know, and and disagreeing and saying, just get one of us up there to ask them. Stop asking softball questions. Stop right. kissing ass. All of, all, you know. That's and, what you know, you'd expect. Yeah, I mean, Sally Reaganhart in the middle of Giuliani's testimony is holding up her sign saying "fiction," you know, and saying, you know, right. my son was murdered, murdered because of your incompetence, and you know, it's, right. you can hear it all, and it's uh, it's really tough. And there are a number of other times where uh, you know where the generals are speaking around NORAD testimony, and and people are calling and saying, tell us about the war games. And, you know, and, and uh, whenever the families, whenever there are families in the audience that are trying to say, enough of these softball questions, enough about talking about Mayor Giuliani, you were such a great mayor, you're just, you're just amazing, I just, I know, I don't know how you did it, et cetera, et cetera. And they're, and they're, and they're complaining and calling the 9-11 commissioners to, to ask the tough questions, uh, you know, Lee Hamilton and Tom Keene bang gavels and, and tell them you're going to be escorted out of this hall if you keep talking like that. You're, you're, you're only wasting our time. It's all this kind of um, principle of the school, scolding the little children, the 9-11 families, for daring to ask questions. Right. Or keeping, exactly. trying to keep the commission to, do, to, to, to stay on track by asking the right questions. Right. Well, I would like to if we could maybe uh, move into some of the questions. And um, one of the brilliant things about your book, uh, which I've ordered, by the way, but I haven't had a chance to read. (laughs) I really look forward to it, and I'll read every word, and then we'll we'll be in touch. Um, But as I understand from from, uh, the reviews of your book and your recent interview with Christina Borgeson, who, by the way, is on our 9-11, she is a new member of the board, by oh, the great. way, of the uh, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, of which I'm also on the board and have been for about five years. So she joined She joined the board on September 15th. Oh, um, she interviewed you recently. So so from, from that interview and reviews of your book, if I understand correctly, having not yet had a chance to read it, if I understand correctly, um, what's, what's really brilliant about your book is that besides... Um, framing it around the questions 
uh, of the 9-11 victims' family members themselves um, that were ignored or only partially answered or whatever by the 9-11 Commission. I think only about 9% of their questions were answered at all Mm -hmm. and not really uh, substantively in many cases, that 9%. um, That that what's really brilliant about it is that you then you then answer those questions um, with your own research. Yeah. And so given that you do that in the book, if I understand correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. um, given that you do do that, and there are so many questions, you can only go into so much detail from your own research as the answers to those unanswered questions by the 9-11 Commission. I would like to know, um, based upon your research, what do you think are like the top three burning questions um, whose answers you think are the most revealing uh, about what really happened and didn't on 9-11? Well, I think that um, one of the burning questions, and I had to think about, you know, I'm not going to do a series and do another book with Solve more questions, but but I think the question about you know where where was the nation's military, where was the air force on on September 11th? Right. Uh, I, I think that's I mean Lori Van Auken and Patty Casaza in 2007 or, uh, or 2007 in November were at a a, a rally to launch a, a new campaign for the city of New York to have a new investigation into into the attacks, and they talked about how I mean not only does uh, are there protocols in place uh, for hijacking to respond to, to hijacking within eight minutes of notification? But as well, there also are protocols uh, that have to do with uh, an emergency response because any plane uh, flying in domestic airspace two miles off of its approved flight path poses a, a, a real and present danger to any other plane flying in the opposite direction. Right. This is this is you know I mean I had to go and find out because I I don't think about that I don't know if I, either of you ever thought about this before I've never thought about this like when did they first start having you know air traffic control and pilots having to check in with air traffic control before they could leave the departure gate I mean all of these kinds of things and, and what would they need to discuss before they could leave and start heading down the runway to take off and, mm-hmm. but uh, I mean certainly the the FAA's forerunner uh, the CAA but whatever it was called in 1958 when it was formed you know mandates every single plane has to have the pilots have to have to make sure that the air traffic control is satisfied with the flight path and the altitude and and this is because in 1956 there was the Grand Canyon mid-air, you know, mid-air Grand Canyon collision with a commercial jet and a military. 128 people died, and there were a number of other flights where there were commercial planes crashing into one another. I think in New Jersey and Connecticut, uh, a couple of other ones uh, in the late 50s, and and the traveling public needed to be assured that when they bought tickets and got on a plane, that that plane would not crash into another commercial jet on route. Or military. military. You Mm -hmm. want to know that that's going to be okay. And so they put these protocols in place. And I know from, you know, congressional 
general accounting general accounting office that puts out I think a yearly they do a yearly tally of uh, of the number of times that the military has had to send fighter jets to scramble and intercept a plane for any reason thunder and lightning storm uh, problems with the, the uh, the dashboards, computer technology, um, uh, sick pilots, uh, hijacking rarely, but it did happen occasionally, or other things that might be going on that would cause a plane to go off course two miles or more. They would have their graduated uh, steps of right. the wings to make sure everything's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so it it's was that break time again. <laughs> okay. We'll get back to <laughs> the next. Goes really quickly. You're listening to the other side of midnight. Our guests tonight are Ray McGinnis and Barbara Honiger. Barbara Honiger played a key role in achieving the declassification and release of the 28 pages, which led to the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. So we're really, I'm really grateful to have her as a co-host tonight with our wonderful guest, Ray McGinnis. We will be back after the break. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Holdwin and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
and welcome back to the other side of midnight. Tonight, me or Barbara Honiger, and this is Cynthia. Our guest is Ray McGinnis. And if you'd like to find the show in the future, you can find it in the archives. It's entitled 911 What the Families Have Asked and the 911 Commission Ignored. So, Barbara and Ray, you were deep in it before we went to break, and I invite you to continue with your conversation. Yeah. Well, well Ray, was, Ray was telling us about the uh, the importance of of the lack of scrambles. Um, yeah. Right. Right. I, I can actually. I can, um, Barbara. I can. I can. And Kinti, I can. I can read exactly what Mindy Kleinberg said to the 9/11 Commission. Yes. On this, yes. this she said to the commissioners. Prior to 9-11, FAA and Department of Defense manuals gave clear, comprehensive instructions on how to handle everything from minor emergencies to full-blown hijackings. These protocols were in place and were practiced regularly for a good reason. With heavily trafficked airspace, airliners without radio and transponder contact are collisions or calamities waiting to happen. Those protocols dictate that in an event of emergency, the FAA is to notify NORAD. And once that notification takes place, it is then the responsibility of NORAD to scramble fighter jets to intercept the errant planes. It is a matter of routine procedure for fighter jets to intercept commercial airliners in order to regain contact with the pilot. And I remember seeing uh, uh, the General Accounting Office had given a report to Congress, I think in in, in 1993 or 94, 93, I think, and and it was for the previous four years. And the number of times that fighter jets were asked to scramble in domestic airspace was over 1,500 times. So they were used to doing this. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, it, it's, it, it was inconceivable to the families who knew that even on uh, Payne Stewart was a, a much reported story where this golfer lost uh, in his, his, his private plane somewhere in Florida, and suddenly there's six fighter jets uh, on uh, you know on either side of him, taking him to the nearest runway to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're wondering. So I don't know the exact amount, but I, I would guess that if in a in a three to four year period from 89 to, to 90, 89, 90, 91, 92, you've got over 1,500 uh, scramble inter- intercepts. Um, you could have, you know, between eight or twelve thousand times between 1958 and the 10th of September 2001, and then suddenly you have uh, zero for four on September right, 11. Conveniently, all busy. <laughs> yeah, everyone's busy. <laughs> so. Uh, well, they were busy because they were, uh, in they were. Uh, conveniently. Uh, conveniently uh, involved with the war games and the counterterrorism response exercises uh and they were being um they were being sent off into you know into the atlantic ocean chasing phantoms from the screen during these uh these exercises um that norad was uh, was conducting um and um and the the responders the pretext or excuse um that um, NORAD used after the fact why they couldn't have possibly um, scrambled the planes in time was because the exercises were ongoing and that the uh, people at NORAD Northeast Sector in Rome, New York, who were looking at their radar screens, 
couldn't tell if it was uh, an exercise or the real thing. And of right. course, and that's, that's also absurd. Excuse. So unbelievable. That's an excuse. Yes. Um, I would just like to jump in and point out a very important fact um, that is relevant to what Ray had already uh, mentioned before, That I, the question I'd asked him about, well, what happened when um, uh, Benvenista, who was on, uh, Richard Benvenista, who was one of the members of the 9-11 Commission, asked that critical question uh, during one of the 9-11 Commission hearings of Donald Rumsfeld, who was Secretary of Defense, and he asked the question, well, um, Secretary Rumsfeld, did you order fighter jets to be scrambled to protect the Pentagon from the incoming plane on 9-11? And that he looked like he'd seen a ghost <laughs> yeah. and looked up at the clock, which probably was a preset cue to whoever was leading the commission, in that case, uh, co-chairman Keene, um, look at the clock. And so Keene slams down his uh, gavel uh, and says, time's up, next witness, so that Donald Rumsfeld did not need to answer that question. And that's a critical question, and there's a critical piece of evidence that I now need to give you, and I'd like to know if it's in your book, Ray. Okay, sure. And that is that on June 1st, let me back up, on May 8th of 2001, a, a little bit less than a month before June 1st of 2001, President Bush uh, put out an executive order and a press release announcing that he had appointed or delegated uh, to Vice President Cheney to be in charge of all counterterrorism planning and response, and that included all exercise planning, etc. So all of these exercises had to have been, at a very minimum, completely knowledgeable by Vice President Cheney, but probably orchestrated and overseen by him. So. Uh, critical piece of evidence, the other critical piece is that less than a month later, about three weeks later, on June 1st, um, there was a new guidance, a new, it's called a, a new hijacking guidance, mm -hmm. um, that was signed by uh, Secretary, of Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. Um, from that point forward, if there was a, uh, an, a, a hijacking of an airplane that Previous to Jan, uh, June 1st, guidance to the Department of Defense from the, from the previous uh, Secretary of Defense had always been that any commander, any uh, military commander who, is in, who was in a position to respond to a hijacking could initiate the hijacking and, and go to the Pentagon and get retroactive authorization okay yeah but as of june 1st there was a new directive from secretary of defense rumsfeld that from june 1st on which included of course september 11th that from june 1st 2001 on that if there was a report or a belief of a hijacking coming either from the military or the faa uh, that the secretary of defense meaning rumsfeld in only the Secretary of Defense would have to be in charge of the response. That's why it's so critically important that Rumsfeld looked like he'd seen a ghost when he was asked that very question. Did you then, in fact, order that defense of your own building? Mm -hmm. And the answer was no, he didn't. Yeah. That he wasn't 
allowed to give the answer. And why not? Because the co-chairman of the 9-11 Commission, Hamilton and, and Keene, already knew the answer to that question. Yeah. They couldn't allow him to answer it. Yeah. You know, the, the first the first question about do I do I mention in my book that, that Vice President Cheney was now in charge of the war games stuff. Yes, I do. The second point, uh, I know at some point it was somewhere in my in my in my bigger draft, but I don't know if it made it into the final cut. I've <laughs> I've going back and forth with editors and deciding right. what you know, so, so, I mean and really I mean I I I appreciate you know with the little little teeny tiny outfit that I was working with partly because sometimes bigger uh publishers these days don't want to be involved with the book like the one I've just published Absolutely but 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 but, but I mean, I'm working with people who you know in my case mostly are editing novels and and so I I was working with an editor who's really good at catching some things to move around text in different places, making sure I hadn't mentioned something more often than I wanted to, because sometimes I couldn't remember if I said something on page 63 and right. 78 and you know so on. So really good at some of those things. But when it came to like writing the book, and I would mention that Dan Rather said such and such, you know. They would want me to take out Dan Rather. Who's Dan Rather? <laughs> uh, well, I'd mentioned Peter Jennings. They would want me to just say ABC reported. Oh my and I God. said, no, it's important that we that I say Peter uh, Je- Peter Jennings, because a lot of people know who Peter Jennings is. Same okay. with Robert Novak, and and so I mean, for some people, I mean, it's all part of you know editors kind of going at text, and. And I, you know, want me to not make have too many names in my in the in the book. I mean, I I uh, uh, at one point they didn't want me to even have an index of names, and I said I have to have an index of names. Yeah. So so there's always this like I'd be going back between like you know eighty three thousand words, you know, trying to get it back up to one hundred and ten, and all this argument about well, you know, the price point and what we can sell the book, you know, all this stuff goes on, and so sometimes yeah. some really great stuff that was in my book doesn't end up in it. But, right. So, yeah. so I think your point was that you're not, you, you don't remember or you're not certain if the, uh, if the, uh, the, the revision by Donald Rumsfeld of, uh, on June 1st of 2001 of the hijack protocol. I don't, uh, in your book. I don't know. Uh, I don't know for sure if it made it back and made it in there for, in the final cut. Well, when I get it, I'll let you know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, what I'll, what I'll say also about, about, about the questions the families asked because it's sometimes it's amazing to me that they asked as many questions as they did partly because like in Kristen Breitweiser's memoir she's writing in 2006 you know she's saying you know nearly 3,000 people uh, uh, four of whom were our, our husbands the Jersey girls you know killed by Osama bin Laden like there's, there is my sense among among the twelve people, including the, the four Jersey widows, at the beginning of the investigation, even in 2003, even up until the spring of 2004, when they're issuing press releases, with great exception to Giuliani's testimony, but notwithstanding, saying you know, kind of you know, we we accept 
basically that, you know, 19 hijackers and bin Laden, but we have all these problems with, you know, people falling down the jobs and incompetence and so on. But there's still a real buy-in with the official narrative, bare bones, at least 19 hijackers and bin Laden. And they still do to this day. Yeah. So, so, so there's, there's this, um, this dance between the question, that they're asking, but the expectation initially from my reading was we're going to ask the government some really tough questions to get the, the Peter Principle people that got promoted too high, that fell down their jobs out of, out of harm's way in the future, the people that are incompetent. Uh, uh, but we, but, we're, but we, we're expecting that when the government honestly deals with all of these questions, which they hoped they would deal with all of them, that when they finish doing uh, an upstanding report, they will satisfy us and the whole American public with, with the official story that they've given us from the get-go. And it really takes the, the 9-11 report's publication in, June, in July of 2004, when the families, at least the, uh, the Jersey girls, plus Monica Gabrielle, and to some extent Sally Regenhard, Beverly Eckert, seeing that the families uh, have only had 9% of their questions answered, that that begins to raise more disturbing questions by the omission of what's been dealt with and starts to really create a fragmentation within the family steering committee to some extent uh, publicly in terms of people's public statements going forward over the next 15 years and the families more generally. Now you have families on side with efforts to have a new investigation. Right. Because of the of the lack of, of rigor and the lack of, of seriousness with which the commission dealt with their questions. And they couldn't really know that until the was published. And no, then in I'm, that uh, in that final hearing, where the famous video of the Jersey girls having just been handed the members of the audience and the 9/11 victims' family members had their hands for the first moment on their copies of their of their uh, 9-11 commission reports, published reports, and they're pouring through them and they're shaking their heads back and forth and their mouths are falling open yeah. at what they are not seeing in the report. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and Mindy Kleinberg says, you know, you know, we were always hopeful that the government would answer our questions. <laughs> I know, it just... Uh, well, one, uh, one other it, question yeah. before Kinsia. Yeah. Uh, turn it back over to Kintia for some more of her questions, and that is, um, uh, were you, I'm sure you did, but after the 9-11 Commission report came out, uh, one of his 11 or 12 amazing books uh, on 9-11, his first one being uh, What Got You Into This in the First Place, which was David Ray Griffin's very first book on 9-11 called The New Pearl Harbor, Um, after the 9-11 Commission report came out, in an amazingly short period of time, uh, Professor David Ray Griffin came out with his book called, I believe it's the title is The 9-11 Commission Report, Commissions and Omissions. Yeah. And presumably that was one of the major, or was it one of the major resources for your book? Yeah, I, cer- I certainly read, read, read that book. And, and you know, and it's, it's, it's a great book. And, and, and the, I mean, the omissions are, 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 are so many. And, and, you know, people like Monica Gabrielle, whose husband Richard died in the South Tower. I mean, you know, she's still saying in in the 
9-11 Press for Truth video documentary in 2006 about, you know, the official story. Yes, you know, bin Laden, you know, the terrorists did this, but, but then all these problems. But then in 2007, uh, she tells the Hartford Current that, current that she is dismayed and disgruntled and, and, and believes less and less in the official story. Right. Then in you 2008, know, I... in two. In 2008, she she endorses David Ray Griffin's book, uh, "The New Pearl Harbor Revisited." That's correct, and that was on the tenth. Well, that was on, I believe, the New Pearl Harbor Revisited, which is tenth anniversary book. Yeah. And my work on the uh, pre-placed explosives at the Pentagon is in his New Pearl Harbor Revisited, which was for the tenth anniversary. I'm almost certain of that. I also personally know Man- Monica Gabriel, oh, okay, and have even with she and her daughter. Uh, you know, shared a hotel room and spoken to all wee hours of the morning with her. Uh, and I will tell you that uh, as late as 2018, um, that's only three years ago, um, I was a speaker uh, at the Left Forum, which is a big conference uh, in New York City. Yeah. And um, we had our 9-11 Truth uh, panel there yeah. that I was part of. And uh, she came to that. And we had a good long talk, both before and afterwards. And yeah. she absolutely understands that the official story is is simply cannot not even it's not true, but cannot be true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been so interesting for me from a distance to to note the the shifts that people like Monica Gabrielle must have gone through. I mean, you know, I I hope that the book I've written will be, you know, is you know that they would appreciate what I've tried to do. Um, it's, um, you know, I'm sure that there's lots of other little things behind the scenes that I could never know unless I've been able to talk to them for my book, but I, that didn't happen. But. Well, Kinthea, um, I know you have some burning questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, you mentioned earlier that there was an artist who had painted these crosshairs with Osama bin Laden. Yeah. And I imagine during the this journey of uh, reveal revelations that uh, her art must have changed as well as all the families, their perspective on what really happened. And I'm wondering, what would you say was the biggest turning point for the families to start really saying this really is can't be the way they say it was? Well, I, well, I think... Uh... A couple of things in the life of the 9-11 Commission, uh, three things. They do a report card uh, about how poorly the 9-11 Commission is doing in September of 2003. Uh, and one of these uh, things that they point out in addition to, hey, you've only uh, issued one subpoena in nine months, uh, no swearing under oath, uh, but also the government minders. Uh, it comes to the attention of the families that, that people, you know, you've got the public hearings of which there are very few. And then you have eight or nine staff teams of the 9-11 Commission amongst the 80 staff who are meeting with witnesses behind closed doors. And they learn that uh, the witnesses are coming from the CIA, the FBI, the Department of Defense, and so on, FAA, NSC, and they are, NSA, and they are uh, accompanied by somebody who's a higher up in the department, perhaps putting their hand on that person's shoulder as they answer questions from 9-11 Commission staff team members, 
or really? sitting, or sitting yeah. be yeah sitting beside the witness. Uh, the witness has been asked a question by a 9/11 commissioner or a 9 or not or a 9/11 commission staff team member, uh, and the answer the, the person answering the question is the government minder, not the witness. They're, the minder indicates to the witness, no, you don't say anything. I'm going to answer this question. Wow, that seems so blatantly controlled. I mean. Isn't it in some cases, uh, Ray, that there were uh, FBI uh, personnel who were there as the minders? Um, oh, that well, the FBI who were present that I'm remembering, I, I don't know for sure if they're FBI, this minute that you're asking me, but I know that when it came to the 503 first responders who were testifying uh, to their FBI, FDNY higher ups about their experience uh, during rescue operations on September 11th. That there were often FBI present at those testimonies. Ah, uh, yes, that's what I'm recalling yeah, from your yeah, interview yeah. with Christina Morgan. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But 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 having these minders there, I mean, the families pointed out in their in their press release and complaint about this was, how can you expect uh, a witness coming forward from? Uh, uh, you know, INS or anything to to speak freely and say what they might say if they think, uh, I'm not going to say this because I think that I'm going to be on the re- receiving end of some sort of retribution or maybe yeah. demotion. Or yeah. worse. Or worse. Mm-hmm. Fired. Fired. Or worse so, than that. Worse, or worse. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, worse yeah. Or, uh, or up Red the lazy to your river. family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's so that was that was uh, that would be one of the big things that would be a a, a real disturbing thing happening that the families point out. And next one is that uh, they they learned that the executive director Philip Zelico and his relationship with Condoleezza Rice, having co-authored a book, that he was also involved in in pivotally in 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 articulating in a paper, the uh, preemptive war doctrine, which got them into Iraq, and, uh, and also was, uh, was putting the counterterrorism uh, group with Richard Clark uh, off the radar, of, of inclu- out of the loop of a lot of discussions uh, with, um, with, with what goes on in the, in the, in the White House and the cabinet, so that Insofar as the story about the, the hijackers and such uh, is followed, uh, you know, we know it's not true. But anyway, but it's but but that whole uh, for the families to see that Zelico is involved in doing something to make uh, awareness of terrorism uh, and, and, and you know go off the radar all the time. And so as well, uh, uh, you know, so they want him to be fired. Well, uh, more, most important, I think, about Zelico. Uh, uh, if you could comment on the fact that um, it was revealed that Zelico personally, um, probably with a team, but he was in charge of it. He was the executive director of the 9-11 commission after, um, you know, uh, Kissinger, yeah. uh, well, no, Kissinger was going to be the chair. But anyway, um, he was the executive director yeah. and that um, he he wrote a very detailed outline before the uh, the 9-11 commission uh, executive staff even began their so-called investigation. He had already written a detailed outline of what the conclusions would be. Yes, yes, the, yes. And this is this is something that comes out after 
the families are already asking for him to 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 step down from being executive director. That's like the next thing that comes along, and it's just it's just uh, incredible uh, that this that this that this happens because the whole um, the whole way that that outline um, uh, unfolded was uh, was just uh, you know every single chapter heading of the whole 9/11 Commission report mirrored almost all of the of the outlines uh headings and subheadings yes, so that he, had, that he had written yeah. beforehand and then if you could comment as you mentioned in your you know christina morgison interview um uh that uh keenan hamilton uh uh met with and collaborated uh with zelico the executive director of the 9-11 commission and they agreed that the fact of that the fact that he had written that before the investigation even began, uh, should be kept secret. Yes, uh, yes. Zelico and the senior counsel, Ernst May, wrote the outline, and then uh, Keenan Hamilton agreed with the, uh, with the two, Zelico and, and, and May, that they're going to keep this secret from the 9-11 Commission staff, uh, and uh, also the, the 9-11 commissioners themselves, never mind the Family Steering Committee. But it right. does, co- does come out, uh, so they do... They, do, they agree to this in March of 2003, but it, it's, it's leaked out somehow in, uh, to the commission staff uh, in uh, May of 2004. And, uh, you know, undermining, uh, you know, again, the trust and confidence. The, the staff think it's just and I, I think we have only about a minute before the break, and I'd just like to mention and get your comment, quick comment on it, that uh, it is a fact that Philip Zellico, not coincidentally, uh, he is a historian. Yeah, and he's at the University of Virginia now, and um, as a professor, and uh, his his expertise, his specific expertise, is on national myths and how to maintain them. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, he's he's quite the myth maker, isn't he? <laughs> he certainly is. And David Ray, Professor David Ray Griffin, has called uh, the 9/11 Commission report a 571-page myth. And with that, we're at a hard break. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guests tonight are Ray McGinnis and Barbara Honiger. And we are discussing the 911 event, how it unfolded, and the breakthroughs that they've had, and the report. We're going to come back, and Ray's going to tell us more about it. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. 
To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. ...of students and working professionals who want to get more done. Welcome back to the other side of midnight tonight. Barbara Honiger is co-hosting with me, Cynthia, and our guest is Ray McGinnis. And Ray, you were just talking about how key elements of a report, they were being told to withhold them and keep it secret. You want to continue on that? Certainly. So, so there's, so there's, you know, there's the, the outline, which is prescriptive uh, for uh Slanting the investigation. Uh, normally, when you have an investigation, uh, police perhaps uh, or pro, you know defense or prosecution, whoever wants to go, and they they bring forward evidence, and even if they have an, uh, have a case that goes to trial, often what happens is in the course of a trial, you may have new witnesses that come forth. We often see this, especially in in Hollywood movies that are based on a court, on a on a trial in a court scene, where suddenly another witness comes forward and provides a whole bunch of new information and takes the whole story about how a crime happened in a new direction. But if you write an outline and and decide all of the uh, the shape of the narrative of what the report is that you're going to write at the end. Of, of the whole of the whole investigation, 
that means that there's a whole bunch of people that might come forward that you will then decide not to include in your report. And so uh, there were whistleblowers that were coming uh, to the Jersey girls and maybe other family steering committee members begging to be subpoenaed because then they would be given uh, if they came forward under a subpoena. And one of the people was Sibel Edmonds who came and, and wanted to be uh, able to testify. And they actually, they, Patty Casazza said they brought, they brought Sibel Evans and they put her right in front of the 9-11 commission and said, here, interview her. And they did interview her. And she had two or three hours of interviews and said that in her, that in her, in her closed uh, session interview, she told the commissioners that, there, that the government knew when the attacks were happening. They knew the targets. Pentagon and the World Trade Center. They knew the dates, September 11th, and they knew the method planes. But of course, Sibel Edmonds' testimony never found its way into the published report. And so, uh, and uh, no doubt, there are other people who well could have come before the 9-11 Commission and uh, said things behind closed doors. William Rodriguez is another person who said he told uh, the 9-11 commissioners about uh, explosions in the buildings, and that didn't find its way into the report. So there's a pattern of, of choosing to ex exclude and omit uh, numbers of witnesses that are coming forth and saying things that are off message from the outline uh, from the okay. get-go. And by the way, I want to jump in here about Willie Rodriguez's testimony to the 9-11 Commission staff that didn't make it into the report. Um, he, he offered also and named them to bring in uh, almost two dozen additional witnesses. Both himself and these other witnesses were in the basement levels of World Trade Center One, the first tower to be hit on 9-11. And their testimony was that there were massive explosions in the deep basement of World Trade Center One before the plane hit. And we now know that that was also true in the deep basement of World Trade Center 2 before the second plane hit. And we have absolutely proven that from the official seismic record, as well as these at least two dozen witness testimonies. And your listeners can read all of those details uh, in the um, World Trade Center grand jury petition mm. that our Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry filed in April of 2018 with the U.S. Attorney for the Second in New York City, the federal jurisdiction uh, that covers the Twin Towers and World Trade Center 7. And uh, we are, to this day, um, uh, in, um, we, have, uh, we have appealed uh, this, uh, this, uh, the inaction by the U.S. Attorney for the uh, for the district there in Southern District of, of New York, mm -hmm. uh, we have a, we have uh, appealed uh, their decision uh, not to let us know if they have convened that grand jury. But my point is, is that you can read our grand jury petition with the proof of this mm -hmm. that um, there is now forensic proof that there were deep basement explosions in both World Trade Center towers before a plane hit either tower. And that was Willie Rodriguez's testimony about the deep basement explosions in World Trade Center One. That, of course, of course, the 9/11 Commission staff and Philip Zelikow did not allow into the final report. No, no, and and 
and in in my book, I mean, I was always aware of of a of a of a thread I had to follow in terms of what I wrote in my book that would be distinct from writing a book more generally about what the 9/11 truth movement knows. Right. And 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 with the uh, I did decide that it was important, vitally important, to write about uh, the question that they asked, and thank goodness they asked it. They asked the 9/11 Commission to to uh, to uh, investigate reports of explosions at the World Trade Center, and because of that, yeah, because they asked that question, then, uh, uh, and I knew that Patty Casaza had said in the 9/11 Press for Truth documentary that when she spoke to her husband. John in the North Tower that he had told her that he believed and others with him believed that there were bombs going off in the building. And so when I tackled that, that question of explosions in the buildings, I thought, well, I have just one chapter to deal with. And there is so much information about this. I could end up spending the whole rest of the book just writing about this, but, but I have to just sort of get the reader to kind of be curious and realize that there's something seriously wrong with the official story. And so mm -hmm. what I chose to do, uh, given that the reports of explosions, uh, um, reports of, of bombs, secondary devices, explosions, as the first responders told their superiors in, the, in their testimonies in the 2001-2002, with the FBI present at many occasions, that this was still under seal. The 9-11 Commission report is out in July of 2004, all of this testimony of 503 first responders is still not seen the light of day. And the 9-11 Commission didn't want to look at it. So there were some families, and I don't know which ones exactly. I asked Bob McElvain. He wasn't sure exactly who. But there are families that were involved in pressing uh, for the city of New York, together with the New York Times also pressing for the city of New York to release these testimonies. And they finally won uh, and got the city of New York to release release them and the, and the New York Times put them all 503 of the testimonies online on the 12th of August 2005 and you can read all 503 as I did one a day for 503 days in a row just to see what they say and and over a hundred of those first responders uh, report explosions and, and so did 36 of 43 uh, reporters live on the scene also report explosions and many people evacuating the buildings. And so it's a huge problem for the official story, to say the least. Uh, you know, right. I mean, I, you know. I think we should be clear for people who don't know uh, that, if correct me if I'm wrong, that my understanding is, is that those were actually audio recordings and what the New York Times published we're all 503 transcripts. Is that correct? That's true. They, they, they printed the transcripts, published right. the transcripts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, what was the, you know, the whistleblowers who came forward and testified, have, have they been safe since then or have things happened to them? The, the whistleblowers, um, uh, meaning the, the first responders who, the who ones spoke? Who, oh, like Barry oh. Jennings. Barry Jennings died. Oh just before yeah, he was Barry. to give his testimony about World Trade Center 7. Yeah. Yeah. Barry Jennings died mysteriously. I, I, I remember seeing something that was written in a, in a blog that Dylan Avery, when he learned that J Barry Jennings died, said he was, quote, officially freaked out. Yeah, officially freaked uh, out. Wow. Right. 
Yeah. Well, by the way, we do have a caller. Shall we bring him on? Sure. Okay. Keith, you want to bring on our caller, Mike? Hello? Hello, is this Mike? Hi, Mike. Yeah, it is. Hi. Well, welcome to the other side. Yeah, I've been... been I've been listening to uh, this whole session, and it's been very interesting. It certainly is an inside view that we haven't had before. Yeah, I I, w- I was curious. Uh, can you hear me? Is everything okay over yeah. there, yeah. sound-wise? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, cool. cool. Yeah, so I was actually like 11 <laughs> years old when uh, 9-11 happened. Be one now. Uh, so I've had, like, plenty of time to, like, think about it and stuff or, like, figure out what was going on. But um, I guess what I was talking to, like, you know, the filter guy or whatever was, like, does Ray have any uh, idea about, like, you know, maybe there was, like, something about, like, our own U.S. government, like, having involvement with that or, like, allowing it to happen? Um, anything about that or – Okay, well, there's so many ways to go at that question. Um, um, sure. One, one thing is to say, from what I have seen, I mean, of the Family Steering Committee members, a dozen of them, I would say at least four of them are strongly on side with the official account. Others, a number of others would be uh, on side with the hijacker story, but... Uh, uh, wanting to passionately pursue uh, the question about Saudi Arabian complicity, possibly Pakistani complicity, so on. And then others are, are right. more just saying, you know, we don't know what to believe. We think there should be a new investigation. Uh, I think that uh, Paul O'Neill, the Treasury Secretary of, of, for Bush's administration, uh, early on, uh, was at the first cabinet meeting in January of 2001, and he tells in his memoir, The Price of Loyalty, that at the first cabinet meeting in, uh, in January 2001, that uh, the, one of the first items of, of business was uh, President Bush really thought it'd be great if he could find a way to get to war, go to war in Iraq. Right, and, right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, well, and, like, and, and it, Paul I'm sorry. I don't mean. I, I don't mean to cut you off. I'm like. I'm sorry about that. But like, I, I mean, there's like great books written about this, the same exact stuff that happened on 9/11. Uh, you know, David Talbot's uh, The Devil's Chessboard, uh, Russ yeah. Baker's Family of Secrets, shit like that. Like everybody, like there, the the information is out there. Like uh, of like these families or these. Yeah, uh, what do you what do you want to call them? Like we'll call them elitists or the elite or whatever. But they're just families, right? They're just families of people that have a lot of money and sort of dictate what what happens. Like the, there's a lot of similarities with this event, also, right? Like nine eleven specifically, right? And, the, and you've got, I, I think um, there is. I, I there's a lot more to that. It's like you know, they ramped up the American culture, like the, you know, whatever you want to call it, like the left or the right or whatever the fuck, like everybody got like really military or uh, pro that uh, during that. And then, and then we just pulled out, we just pulled out of there. 
and then everybody's like, well, you did it too early. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, it was 20 years of that, you know? So nobody knows what's going on anymore, but. Yeah. Sorry, I just rambled all over. You've you got a president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got a president saying that, uh, you know, he, we'd like to go to war. I don't know whether he'd drill down sure. into the details of how, but it seems that with Donald Rumsfeld reporting at, at that cabinet meeting that he, you know, Saddam's a bad guy, uh, regime change would be good, weapons of mass destruction, and all the talking points that they trotted out after September 11th, up to the lead up to the Iraq war, uh, you know, right. uh, seems like you know, the president signaled he'd like to go to war and finish, uh, get into Baghdad and finish what his dad couldn't, couldn't finish. And, and, and so exactly. you have on the 9-11 commission, you have Max Cleland, who wants the 9-11 commissioners to, uh, to really seriously investigate whether the attacks of September 11th uh, have a, a strong connection to the Iraq war and what's, all about, what's that about. And the rest of the commissioners don't want to go there. And he was well, I think, like, I think, I think that we know. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh no, I was going. I was okay. just going to say, like, I, like, I, I think it's one of those things, you know, like, I, I mean, I hate to say this because it's a little uh, defeatist or whatever, but like, I think it's one of those things that's it's going to be like the, you know, Robert Kennedy or JFK assassination, both those things. It's going to be, it's going to be one of those things that like. We're all going to know, right? Like, we're all going to know the real truth of it. But no one's ever going to say it out loud. You know, it's going to be like radio shows like this or like callers, you know, not like me, really. I, I, whatever. But, like, we all know the truth. But nobody's ever going to run it in a paper, you know. But we all know the truth of it. And, and that's the unfortunate thing is that, like, you have to, like, figure it out for yourself, you know, the truth. Or whatever. Well, I was like, wrong I about was, that. Or record here for Mike. I'd like to, sure. this is Barbara. I, I would like to let you know that there are those of us uh, in organizations like the one that I'm on the board of and have been for over five years, the Lawyers Committee right. for 9/11 Inquiry. Uh, our website is LC. That stands for Lawyers Committee. LC4 4911.org. LC4 911.org. And if you go there you will see that we have filed serious lawsuits and serious demands for criminal grand juries. Um, and right. we just filed another one this September 11th. We are never going to give up. And one way or the other, we are going to bring the yeah, real I was perpetrators just, to justice. Yeah, it's, it's – I, I mean, like I hate to, I hate to say this because I, I agree with what you're doing, but you got to look at the world around you. And it's never going to happen because they're never going to let that happen. It's never going it, to, it's just not going to happen. I respect you. You know what I mean? It's an, it's, a, it's an unfortunate, you know, reality that we have to live with. But the well, fact that you're we, drawing a parallel you know, get to talk about this and. You're drawing a parallel with what, what hasn't happened uh, officially with any acknowledgement of the truth about the JFK assassination, the best we got was the Assassination Review Board. I think that was, what, 1976? Yeah. With, Hillary, with Hillary Clinton on the staff of that, by the way. Um, oh. And uh, the best we well, got yeah, there... Yeah, I... let, me, let me finish, please. Um, the best that we got there 
uh, was that the the final conclusion of the assass- review board about the JFK assassination was that uh, wasn't that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald didn't do it or couldn't have done it, uh, the patsy, but that uh, he didn't act alone, that it was at least a conspiracy. So the government itself, right. uh, the Assassination Review Board of Congress, well, and the, and the, has come out right, and and right and that and that that's exactly what i'm saying now is that like like so many years after now like so much evidence that very like distinctly proves that like alan dulles and you know those people that were like in the cia like like in this case like yeah we don't need this anymore you know like there was a very like a strong case that something with those guys, whether it was Alan Dulles, like, personally, I don't think it was. I think it was, he probably just, like, told somebody to do it or whatever, and then they framed uh, Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald to do it. Like, we we know that now, like, decades later, you know what I mean? And and, and that's the same thing, like, what you're writing about. Like, we're, we know that now. It's, like, it was all wacky and Like, you know, it was, like, at first, like, the Taliban, and then for some reason we went into Iraq, and, like, you know, I mean, Scott Horton writes about all this stuff, too. Like, I mean, these are all, like, great people that are talking about this stuff, you know what I mean? Like, but right. I guess my my, my point was that, like, we all find this out, like, decades later, you know? And, and then we find the real truth out, and it's never in the newspapers, you know? It's just no, something that, like, we all have to figure out ourselves. There were those of us who had determined the truth and the great parts of right. it uh, in a few weeks of 9-11, by the way. So, Mike, I, I would like to just step in here and say that, yes, it is true sure. that the Kennedy assassinations have been shoved under the carpet. But we are a planet that's been in a very dynamic change. Humanity's in a dynamic change. And the things that are currently happening it's like a domino effect. The revelations are happening everywhere. And I don't know that we can really limit the future to what has happened in the past. Not really. Thank We're goodness. in a totally new time. Right. Sure, okay. yeah. Well, I mean, but 9-11 wasn't that far in the past either. I mean, you guys are talking about 9-11 right now, but, like, we're, we're three decades away from – or not – or. Uh, two decades away from what that was and you know we we all sort of know what it was now like looking back like it made no sense like bush like really fucked up and like we went into afghanistan and we went to iraq and like nobody agrees with that now and then like now we're pulling out of us out of you know afghanistan or iraq or whatever and like yeah, they just took over again yeah that that's what was yeah, supposed Mike, to happen Mike, you know trying to say something yeah, I think one oh, of the sorry, things sorry. that I th- is use is useful is the um, is looking back over history. Uh, I mean, I mean, mm. it's, my book is inviting people to consider the historical effa- fact that families that shifted from grief to trying to advocate to, to to get to the bottom of what happened, and between 2001 and 2005, there's a story about what the family steering committee was and what their questions were and all the ones that were ignored and what, what we've learned about, about that uh, omission. But also interestingly, the, the, the looking back at my, 
I mean, I I was a child in the in the 1960s, and and you know, a child throughout the 1960s. But my sense was that the the Gulf of Tonkin. I mean, there was this quick thing about oh, the Vietnamese yeah. have attacked America <laughs> and the Gulf of Tonkin. But it seemed to me, at least being up in Vancouver, or Canada, that very soon a lot of people were saying, you know, this this just doesn't add up. And there was all kinds of massive peace protests all the time, and people burning draft right. cards and all kinds of real pushback around the official story of America being attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin. But it right. seems to have been harder. Which was, for, by the way, um, proven uh, false flag. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Yeah, a false flag. But, but, yeah. but after September 11th, uh, with the uh, you know repeated media visuals of planes hitting a building and then the split screen with the building falling and all, all the way that the news, the, the war on terror, the anthrax attacks, the kind of everything but the kitchen sink approach to uh, making people uh, rattled and traumatized and everything that was right. going on. It's, I think it's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, numbers of journalists like Dan Rather said it was like if you, if you criticize uh, the, the, the Bush administration, it was like there was a, uh, a, a necklace of patriotism, like you were being, like uh, you know, called out for being anti-patriotic, uh, for questioning anything about the official narrative. So I think in sure. ways, yeah, the, yeah, I guess the U.S. military, the US military yeah. kind of learned. Um, uh, they watched what happened in the 1960s with uh, with the way there was pushback regarding Vietnam, and they said we need to do this differently. And so they came along with you know a different way to deal with September 11th that maybe is been right it's been harder to break through yeah so can i, I, I just, want can to I just say something real quick too mike, because like mike we, no. we have a lot of things we want to still cover on the show so i want to thank you very much for calling in and uh, we hope you will call back again these are very important questions and i'm cognizant of how much time we have left on the show and i know we still have a lot to cover so i really appreciate you calling in mike thank you so um we're near the bottom of the hour break and i'm just going to put a little tease here i'm so curious how you both see what are the next steps for for moving forward in this investigation and the resolution of this investigation you can go first, Ray. Okay. Well, you mentioned earlier, uh, Barbara, about uh, you know about uh, you know li- liberal churches, um, at least uh, people of faith. And uh, I'm I've worked with a little group of four Canadian churchgoers and two Americans uh, to create a little eight-session study guide for my book. I do not know. <laughs> I don't have a big budget to get the word out but but you know there may be uh you know a dozen two dozen five dozen congregations in the next year that will decide during lent or some other time to read my book uh and use the study guide as a theological framework to reflect on this important story of what the family the families did through the steering committee and i think that it may be a way uh to get uh to get a way in for congregations to start reflecting on this story. And I think there's got to be a way because a lot of people, I talked to some people just today, earlier today, and they, they were just, they think it's very interesting. I've written this book, churchgoers, 
that I know. And, um, and they're, they're just, it's just not on their radar at all. It's just not even a question that they would even think of to add to a list of things they want to get around to. So I think that there needs to be a way and maybe having a study guide uh, for unanswered questions is one way to get that wider conversation happening. Well, I look forward to reading that study guide. If you could send it to me, I will, uh, with your permission, I will yeah. share it with the lawyers committee board. Um, and, uh, we'll talk, we'll talk more after the break. I'd, I'd like you to address the question. Uh, it's a serious question. We're about to go to the break in a few seconds, but I'd like you to address the question of what do you mean by a theological framework in your okay. study guide? What is the theological framework? Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Perfect place for a break. You're listening to the other side of midnight and our guest is Ray McGinnis and Barbara Honiger is co-hosting and also guest. <laughs> we'll return after the break. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02.5 per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Thank you. 
And welcome back to the other side of midnight. Barbara Honiger is co-hosting with me, Kinzia. Our guest is Ray McGinnis. And Barbara had just asked Ray about a question of what did he mean by a theological workbook. And I, I just want to add here uh, that I'm struck by the power of the people. That here's an investigation that they've, the, you know, the... <laughs> The current narrative has tried to sweep it under the carpet, and it's the people, the ordinary people, the whistleblowers, the families who have forward and are shaking it up. And then you have leaders like Barbara Honiger and Richard Gage and and uh, the other attorneys. And uh, then you have the authors, such as yourself, this, this mass wave of uh, revelation. So here's the other octave, you know, Barbara was asking you, what do you mean by a theological uh, workbook on this material? Yeah. So, yeah. So the, the book study, um, I mean, I've, you know, I've been uh, at at times uh, uh, working uh, as a Christian education director or national staff uh, developing materials for, for, congregations or for youth groups to reflect on uh, things going on in their world. Sometimes these are about justice issues. Sometimes they're about personal growth or spiritual growth. Um, uh, trying to imagine, you know, where, what, what's leading you forward? What, what are the kind of best outcomes for, for you as you look at the next years ahead of your life? You know, what, what's, what's the best way that you could express yourself to benefit the world and God, as, as they would speak about. And I'm aware that for many people who I know who attend uh, congregations and worship um, now by Zoom in the pandemic and before that in person, uh, that there is a culture of uh, study of Bible study and of book study. And that often is accompanied by uh, familiar frameworks, uh, which involve prayer, uh, looking at scripture uh, in the uh, Christian scriptures and the Hebrew Bible, uh, looking at, uh, at questions that can help them have a discussion. And so I need to present my book in a framework of a, a book, a study guide for unanswered questions that could be tailored for Christian congregations, which is what I know. I mean, others may want to do this for synagogues or for Muslim temples or Buddhist groups, but I, I can't really do that because I, you know, they, they can adapt what I've done, but I, I'm doing this for, because I know that there's people, some people I think would be benef- beneficial if they would give attention finally after 20 years to this matter of, the, of, of September 11th and the families. And so one example would be in the Gospel of Luke in the Christian New Testament, there is a story of the persistent widow uh, who uh, there's some injustice and she is trying to get an unjust judge to hear her story and hear her complaint. And I contrast that with the story of, of the widows, of, the 9-11 widows that, uh, that tried to get the 9-11 commission, their government, to do the right thing. That's and so there's, 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 yeah. so there's ways of, because of, if for some people, unless, if all I do is go to some people and say, here's a couple of headline news stories, let's discuss that. 
for some people, it's their reaction is that's politics. I, I just don't know how to deal with that. But if we weave it through and open it with a prayer and, and light a candle or sound a prayer bell or, you know, get people to talk about how their day was or like all the kind of stuff that helps people break the ice and then start talking about, you know, read the first chapter. Who is the person in this first chapter that you what story did you relate to and get them to talk about where they were on September 11th? You know, start to move them through the chapters and and do that in a way that that's going to help them do it with enough familiar frameworks that they use all the time in their study and book study programs in, in their own parishes and churches could be a way. I mean, it may still be a tall ask for some congregations that don't want to touch this, but I think that if there's a way, this might be. I haven't finished doing the study guide, by the way. I'm going to finish it by the end of next month, but I'm working on it. I'm hoping that it can be something that, that some people will be willing to do. Well, I think that's brilliant. Um, to, uh, from a Christian perspective, I'm a highly spiritual person, but I have to, uh, have to tell you that uh, I was kicked out of the Episcopal Church at age six for, oh. for saying in Sunday school that my daddy was better than Jesus. I haven't been back since, but I'm oh, well. a highly spiritual and guided person. And um, uh, but from a Christian perspective, which I understand cognitively, uh, and by the way, um, Professor David Ray Griffin and um, and Professor uh, uh, Cobb, who, as I understand, wrote the forward to your book, is that correct? Yes. John Cobb. Yeah. Well, they they are colleagues going way, way, way back, uh, as you know. Um, and when I was at Stanford University, they're they're followers of the philosophy, the process. Uh, philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead, which which uh, I specialized in in philosophy at Stanford. Oh, so, small uh, world. <laughs> yeah, it's a very small world, and it sounds like you have uh, you you have an affinity for that as well. Um, but anyway, my point was is that from a Christian perspective, um, Jesus was such a brilliant orator um, and uh, spiritual orator uh, and charismatic spiritual order orator. And uh, what he would do is he would use parables. Um, he would use analogies and parables. We might call them analogies today. And um, so you're doing something very similar uh, with framing, um, getting the the um, uh, the congregations to get interested um, in uh, the story of the 9/11 uh, Jersey girls, the widows, yeah. um, through the parable. Uh, a, a kind of parable of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And do you do that for all of the questions, or just some of them? Well, I'm for the study guide, which is uh, yet to be put online. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Study guide. It, it, yeah it's, it's a study guide. Uh, I, I will be. I will be. We had to try and figure out how with these six people that were part of the study guide group that was working with me. How are we going to do like, you know, we know that people only have so much time and there's uh, eight sessions was the most we could think that a, a, a parish or a congregation would probably be willing to do a study on this, given that there's often other things that they want to do as well. So when it came to part three in my book, where I cover 11 questions, we thought there's no way that they're going to 
be able to usefully try and discuss all 11 questions in one 90-minute period of time. Mm-hmm. So instead, what I'm working on is I've, I'm the sixth session number six, which deals with all of part three's 11 questions. Um, the group in the previous session will vote about which two chapters, they, questions they want to discuss in their group. Mm-hmm. And then they'll, they'll tackle the, the material I've written for the two chapters they want to discuss, mm-hmm. which means I have to write material for all 11 of those chapters. <laughs> yeah, people can mix and match <laughs> yes, if you get do. my drift. <laughs> well, I'd like, I'd like to uh, jump off of what you said about your theological framework uh, for your study guide on your book, Unanswered Questions. And um, I know that Kinthea will want to comment on my comment and your comment as well. Uh, Kinthea already knows this story, which I'm going to give you in summary. And I'm not sure you're aware of it, Ray, and the listeners may have heard me talk about it in a previous show with Richard Hoagland as the host. Mm. Um, But this is very important. Because the battle that we are in, the battle for truth, you know, Gandhi said that the highest God is truth. And I believe that. Um, you, you, can't, you can't speak the truth. You can't know the truth. You can't want to know the truth and then speak the truth publicly without courage. So courage is the most important uh, character, uh, character trait. Um, but when you have courage and you seek and know and speak the truth, that that is, according to Gandhi, the highest God. Mm. And the spiritual aspect of the battle we are in, not only to know the truth and to speak the truth publicly, but then to have justice based upon the truth and the facts. Um, that, is a, that is first and foremost a spiritual battle. Mm, it is absolutely. a battle in the real world. Uh, people like you and me, Ray, of spending literally hours poring over books and documents and writing and going on the radio and all of the things that we do. Um, but at its essence, it's a spiritual battle. And I'm going to give one example uh, from my own life because Cynthia happened to mention it at least twice. Uh, in, in, uh, she, she pulled it out of my bio uh, oh. to mention tonight. And that is that the, uh, in a nutshell, the story, uh, the true story of how the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act got passed against the vociferous um, uh, objections of the entire global national security deep state. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about not only current and former CIA directors, uh, former NSA directors, uh, the equivalent of the CIA directors of MI6 in the UK, mm. uh, the equivalent in Pakistan, they all did not want the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act to get passed. And the way it got passed, after 14 years of the 9-11 victims' family members, led by the Jersey Girls and by uh, Terry Strada and her group yes. that is now yes. suing the Saudi government, the Saudi government for their alleged involvement in 9-11, um, the, uh, after 14 years, uh, they had had no success in getting the famous 28 pages of the original House Senate Intelligence Report released. And I had just listened to uh, one of the 9-11 victims' family members on a radio interview. And after I listened to it, and this was in 2016, 
in the summer of 2016, I was so infuriated yet again of all of the blockage of, of the 28 pages because we already knew enough from some whistleblowers from inside the FBI that if the 28 pages were released, that the Saudi connection would be there for the world to see. And that, of course, was why it had been classified for 14 years yeah. at that point. And so I, I was furious and I went to sleep with a prayer. And that prayer was very simple. Please, if you believe in God, if you believe in the force, the X factor, I don't really care what you call it. It's real. The spiritual force is real. And I prayed, show me how to get the 28 pages released. Hmm. I went to sleep. When I woke up, there was a single you need. It was, it was like, you know, from the great computer in the sky. You need a Mike Gravel for the 28 pages. What did that mean? Mike Gravel was the guy who read parts of the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record and opened up the whole thing. Okay. And so I knew Mike Gravel. He happened to live close to me here in the Monterey Peninsula. And I went to Mike Gravel. And I said, Mike, your country needs you. And I started to tell him what he needed to do, which was that he, Mike Gravel, who had won the lawsuit that the Nixon administration brought against him to try to put him away in prison for years for doing what he did. And the Supreme Court of the United States found for Mike Gravel and against the Nixon administration, the Nixon Justice Department, in a critical case called Gravel versus the United States Hmm. or the U.S. versus Gravel. And what they did was they said the Constitution of the United States states clearly under the speech or debate clause that any member of Congress, any sitting active member of Congress, House or Senate, can say anything on the floor of the Senate, and they cannot be touched by the courts, by the executive branch, by anyone for saying anything, even even leaked classified information as any part of their official congressional duty. And so I said, Mike, your country needs you. You need, because he was already on board with 9-11 Truth big time. I said, Mike, your country needs you. You need to go to Congress and you need to meet with the members of Congress who have read the 28 pages in the classified reading room, haven't been allowed to take in even pencil and paper, had to only have it in their heads. You need to remind them. You need to go sit down with them and tell them that they have the power. All they have to do is stay on the floor of the House or the Senate or in any or in any official uh, proceeding of Congress, like a hearing or a subcommittee hearing, all they have to do is blurt out what they have read uh, in the classified reading room and the cat's out of the bag and everything will fall. And Mike Gravel did that. Huh. He huh. did that. And he went to Congress and it wasn't long before the members of Congress got together with Terry Strada and her group on the steps of the Capitol of the United States. They held their press conference. And they let the the executive branch, then President Obama, know that um, he either that that either he was going to declassify the 28 pages or Congress was going to do it. And Congress did it. And within an extremely short period of time of the 28 pages being released, in which the whole Saudi connection was revealed with their text, um, it was only weeks before the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act was passed originally unanimously by both houses of Congress 
Then it was then it was vetoed by President Obama, taking mm-hmm. the side of Saudi Arabia against the 9-11 victims' family members, literally thousands of them who lost their loved ones on 9-11. And then the Congress of the United States overruled Obama's veto and just the justice, Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act was passed. This all happened within a few weeks of my getting the guidance after praying that night. Oh, it's wonderful. Thank you. And I'm a witness to Barbara. She is a moving force. (laughs) You know, I mean, some people may think it's all about the linear mind and how you construct a case and how you're finding the information. But Barbara, she puts that as a tool to support her intuition. And it's very strong. I've watched her over and over just hone in and get this signal. It's like a beacon. And she has the courage to follow it and to take action, to put things in motion. Just as she listened to that voice. And I, I find Barbara, I find you to be an inspiration for all of us because we all get signals. The thing is we often don't act on them or we discount them. We immediately start discounting them why, why they can't be true. And that's the difference between living, living your destiny as opposed to just surrendering to your fate. Well, it's not that I am a force. I partner with a force is what I say. Yes. <clears throat> Agreed. Agreed. Yes. But we have to be not only willing to listen to that still, small, quiet voice, but also to recognize the source of it and then to take action on it. And many of us are so drowned in the minutia of the day and all the stories that are being fed us that it's, it's like overload. And I think that these times that we're in are forcing people to really become more present with their internal sensors. Well, you have listening. To. It's the only way that we will prevail. It because is. From from many, 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 many decades, and I'm in my 70s now, I have to admit, um, reluctantly. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I'm a young 70. Um, but, but from all of these decades of experience, acting on the guidance that I receive, which is very crystal clear. I know it when I, I know it when I see it, as they say. Um, I know it when I know it. And... What, you, what people need to know is that when you act on it, the miracles happen. Mm-hmm. They are miracles. The synchronicities start in unbelievable ways. You will have, if you follow your guidance, despite your left hemisphere, for 90% of us who are right-handed, um, your left hemisphere will give you all kinds of reasons not to do it. Mm-hmm. But if you follow your guidance, no matter what, you commit to following your guidance. The Red Sea opens at every step along the way. Just when you need the resources, they appear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's like the uh, well, like Jesus of Nazareth says, the truth will set you free. Mm-hmm. And if you follow that North Star of truth, you will find a Red Sea opening, and you'll get to 
uh, a very rich uh, reservoir of uh, a trajectory that takes you somewhere vitally important. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a chapter in your workbook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I'll, I'll have to mention that. And I think, too, that it's uh, one of the uh, uh, the harms uh, uh, in the aftermath of, of September 11th has also been the deforming of the word by it being used as a, a ridiculing term to refer refer to anyone who has questions about the official story as a quote truther, mm. and I think that uh, there needs to be uh, you know uh, a restoration of the nobility of that word, and it's it's I mean it's so important to Western democracy and every and spirituality and and you know courage and individuals we need well, to be I able. Suggest- I would suggest, Ray, that on the Telegram channel, Truthers is a high high standard. Good, good, <laughs> good. You know, the mass media—that's something. But people are exiting from the mass media, the yeah, mass they media. They're exiting, and the Telegram channel—you you will hear a lot of faith-based, and I don't mean the religious doctrine. I mean like what Barbara's talking about—an yeah. internal guidance and adhering to your internal truth. Well, the Christians would call it the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. yes, um, uh, very clearly, and uh, the Quakers would call it the light. Um, you know, different different religious traditions have different names for it, but it's real. It's absolutely real. And very I would like real. to point out that the opposite of a truther is a liar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm proud to be a truther. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, someone who you can trust. Yes. That's right. Everything's turned on its head today by, with so many people. But just, uh, you know, if there's one spiritual message, follow your guidance. Uh, commit to following your guidance when it's a clear guidance. Because when you do, um, the miracles will come. They do come. Yeah, I know that Kristen uh, Charlotte Dennett, who's a great journalist up in I Vermont. Know her. Oh Vermont. yeah, yeah, Burlington, and she had an interview with uh, Kristen Brightweiser and Lori Van Auken, I think around 2009 or so, and uh, and, and they, the widow said that told Charlotte that they felt that uh, in the aftermath of September 11th, with the 9/11 Commission, they were uh, suffering from PTB. S, which is post-traumatic betrayal syndrome. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> I yeah. think the whole country, what yeah. we need to do is educate the country until there's a critical mass of people mm-hmm. who actually go into that and come out the other side. I yeah. think Ray's new book is going to help with that. because it's, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I do, too. I do, too. Yeah. Oh, so, that's... Ray, you want to, we have four minutes left. Uh, back with my host hat on. Uh, you want to wrap up? Well, I'll, I'll say that uh, you know, with with the book I've written, because uh, because I knew that of the of the dozen family steering committee members, they're not all on the same page. You've got people that are strongly aligned with the official story. Uh, Carrie Lemack in the two thousands 
was warning people in her talks to the press that Osama bin Laden was going to kill four million more Americans and other other things. So, you know, Mary Fetchett pivotally involved with the 9-11 Museum in some ways. And so you've got various people plus others uh, asking for a new investigation. So. Well, I decided when I, you know, wrote my book, I knew that there's a lot, you know, if I, if I was Kevin Ryan, I could, like he did, write about, you know, another 19 suspects. But I thought my book doesn't need to to say things that other books like David Ray Griffin's and Kevin Ryan's have already said that are out there, or 9/11 Unmasked by David Ray Griffin and Elizabeth Woodworth. I need to just try and nudge my reader to a place of being really open to the need for a new investigation. And I thought that that was what could catch the widest group within the FSC to agree that that would still be a good idea. And so I'm hoping that, um, you know, I'm hoping too that my book can be a doorway. People will see lots of things in my 932 endnotes, and they might starting to say, well, now I've read Ray McGinnis's book on Answer Questions. Maybe I'm going to go and look up this book by David Ray Griffin or that book by Kevin Ryan or, or many others. Uh, in- I feel like my my purpose is to be kind of like a gateway into, you know, making people curious to follow up more stuff. Yes, and you combine that with with when they know, you have to use both your right and left hemispheres. Yeah. You do need to know your facts because the fa- the truth is based on facts. Uh that is the foundation of the truth. And you have to learn how to separate the wheat from the chaff, as Jesus might say. Yes. And that's why I believe that especially the progressive religious community in the United States and Canada, we need to build that uh, knowledge base of 9-11 truth and spirituality. Mm-hmm. And then I think that we will have a major change. Let's hope so. Yes. And thank you for your book. <laughs> thank well, you. Thank you. Me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We all thank you. It's for humanity to step forward. And thank you, Barbara, for all you've done as well. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. So this has been a really amazing night with Ray McGinnis, and this book is Unanswered Questions. Good night, all. Good night. Good night. Good night, everybody.